Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, everyone. You're with Rodney Hyde, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. We've got a great show lined up. As always, what wonderful people we have. First up, we're going to be talking to Brian Tamaki. I'm so looking forward to this because, well, I don't know how to phrase this politely, but I had a rather negative view of Brian. But I realized that I didn't know him, that all I knew of him was what I read in the media. And I've learned deeply that you now can't trust what they're telling you about people or events or things. So we'll find out as it was, as it were, from the horse's mouth. We'll talk to Brian. And uh, i got to say, I changed my opinion of Brian Tamaki a lot when he was such a brave stander-upper for our freedom through the COVID madness. And I thought that takes that takes some courage. So good on him. And we're also going to be talking to a young student called Jack Marshall Lee, who's at university, 22 years old. We're going to talk to him about what it's like uh, to be at university these days. I suspect we're going to find it's very different to what it was in our day. And uh, for those, those of us that are a bit older, and uh, he's also a resident advisor which I understand he sort of lives in the hostel looking after students. So he'll have a good insight. That's all coming up uh, straight after this. Remember, you can send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love, I love getting your um, responses, and I love getting the mailbag. So please do uh, send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. It's how we build the community. It's how we build the belonging. Let's get into it. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 
You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I get excited about my guests, but um, none more so than this one. Uh, we've got the Bishop Brian Tamaki, who says, just call me Brian, which is a Kiwi thing, right? And Brian, good morning. Good morning, Rodney. Look, I've got to tell you, my yeah. dear mother, my dear mother passed yeah. away last year, 94. God rest her soul. She had a great life, so I don't feel sad. I miss her. But mm. I've got to tell you, she and I loved your protest. Wow. And my mother was saying, I just want to go on one of those motorbikes and protest expletive the prime minister with you. And it gave her such a lot of joy to see you standing up for us. And I have to say, for me, myself, personally, it emboldened me. And I really would like to salute you and your team because they were dark days to stand up and be counted. Oh, yeah. And you paid yeah. a price in terms of your media coverage, right? Ooh. They were nasty, nasty, nasty. And anyway, I just had to tell you that my mother will be looking down on us and so excited that I'm speaking with you and that I get the opportunity to tell you that she wanted to ride with the boys on their bikes. Now, I want to get into lots, but can you tell me what you know of the Marima Davidson incident? Because you recall she went on and was the big victim of Destiny Church. Yeah, that was interesting because I stopped on my way down to um, Avatia Centre where Hannah was already holding a stand for um, the woman. That was before she knew about Posey. But um, I stopped there to have a look on the way through and um, saw the situation. I saw how many um, transgender uh, opposition that was there. And I thought to myself, there's going to be trouble here. Mm. And I thought I'd better move on because the temptation would have been to have gone in there and looked after stuff, but they didn't want that. So I know when I'm not wanted, and I went, we moved. Apparently, um, something happened at the back where um, Marima Davidson went across a, a crossing and then she saw the bike. She knew who it was. She knew it was me and the riders. And I think she did something crazy like trying to cross back again to put her hand up in some way that she was somebody special. She wasn't a, she wasn't a, a, a traffic inspector or, or anything like that. Um, so she took a risk with her life, knowing the bikes were going through. Normally, in that situation, people wait. They just It's mm. common sense. It's halfway through the bikes. You don't mm. go halfway through and try and – I don't know what she was trying to do, get tension or get hit or what, but it was a, a suicidal act. It was. I saw the video eventually, yeah. and um, she was crazy. And then it's the thing of our times, right? She became the poor me, the big victim. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was entirely <laughs> her doing. But we yeah. see a lot of that now, don't we? Well, they blame me at first. And it was clear that I was way out in front. And I said, <laughs> one of the, the media said, did you hit her? And I said, listen, 
if I had a hit her, she wouldn't get back up off the ground again. No. <laughs> it's no. like, um, no, it's crazy. That, well, that's been, like you said, Rodney, it's been a, a whole part of my life since way back in 2004. That's when it changed. <clears throat> I want to cover your life because mm. I'm sure listeners are like me. Um, they're fascinated by you. For my money, uh, just so you know where I am coming from, um, I thought you were fringe. Mm. I took great. I had a lot of respect for Tariana Turia. Yeah. And I sat beside her in Parliament for three years, and we shared stories, and I learned a lot from her. And she spoke very, very highly of you and your work, which mm. made me look at you differently rather than just a media portrayal. Yeah. Then I have to say, when you protested, you shot up in my estimation enormously. And I've also had this whole experience of COVID, transgenderism, and this complete bewilderment about what has happened to our world. Ooh. The fact that I can't trust any of my preconceptions or anything that the media have told me. And in that deep thing, I have become a Christian. And I can't tell you what that has meant to me this year. And so wow. I look at you now completely different. And of course, I understand your program for men. So I'm fascinated, and our listeners are aware of we can't just read in the media and have our values and views assigned to us by the media and also our attitudes about people and events and things. Mm. And so we feel lucky to have you with us to tell us your story. I'd like to know about you growing up, first of all. Well, okay. Um, you just stop me, though, Rodney, when you want to. I'm fine. And um, change course, you can just interrupt. Um, I was born in a family um, in Te Awamutu. That's uh, just south of Hamilton, um, a farming family. My mother is uh, European. In fact, my grandmother's Italian, full Italian. And um, uh, mum, her dad was my grandfather English and of course the Italian grandmother so dad was a Maori and they lived in the same area um, both had farms although the Maori farm was full of gorse and the farm up the top their mum was from a very middle class wealthy farming family with five six sisters one son so they all married in farm so I grew up on the farm was Went it a big farm. deal your mum and dad marrying uh, a Maori yeah um, my my grandmother and grandfather did not want my mother to marry my dad because he was a Māori. Mm. In those days, <clears throat> it was um, especially with the kind of family, very very um, middle class, white, rich family, yes. and um, it was through the uh, table tennis down the, the local farmer's hall. And, of course, dad was a good player. And he was young. He was from a big family, 18 altogether in his family. How many? 18. Yeah. Big Māori family. It was 18 big. kids or 16 kids? Uh, 18. 
eight each. She had 18 children. Um, oh, my lost, goodness. She lost one, and she adopted three into pretty big um, Māori family names. <clears throat> but it was – that was where they met in the, in the hall, and Dad was a good player. Dad was the oldest in the family, so I'm the oldest grandson of that family. And um, my grandmother on my father's side is a direct descendant of Princess Tapuia. She, yeah. was a head, she was a herangi, my grandmother. Mm. So I used to go to Tūranga Waiwai Marae as a little boy because she used to go all the time. And so they had great respect and they, <clears throat> the, the royal family always knew who I was. I didn't. And um, I was to have a lot to do with um, Dame Te Atai Rangi Kahu. She knew my whakapapa very well. Got me there a lot to speak about the Christian faith because she was often concerned with Tainui's direction. And um, I kind of felt like dropped in it sometimes because I spoke at a ruby breakfast the year that she died. And um, 650-odd um, Tainui elders, all of the board members and the, the names you would know were there. It was totally off the charts. They were not happy about Queenie um, choosing me to be the keynote speaker. And I wasn't happy either because... <laughs> I said to her, why do you, you know, I'm totally at odds probably with the tikanga and what I'd say. She said, that's exactly what I want you to do. Oh, my she goodness. said, I'm, I'm concerned with my people. And I said, what, what are the concerns? Well, she said, like going back to, to Ferifer, um, the first um, the first Māori chief, um, Pōtato, and saying that um, him and his next son, Tafio, he was converted big time to Christianity. And um, he had stopped all his killings. And one of the biggest, um, most uh, notorious warriors of his day, um, they were converted, you see. So he said they have brought the tikanga through, but they left the Bible behind, which they always anointed the Maori kings with, a, with the scriptures from Deuteronomy, that you shall rule over your people with the anointing with God. So I said, well, that's going to be fairly easy for me. But the next one, she said, really shocked me. And I haven't really spoken about this. Um, she said to me, a lot of the people and the young ones around me are gay. And she says, I don't like that. And I said, mm. wow. Now, she said, I've been watching you on TV because I had an early TV program. <clears throat> I was the first Kiwi that pioneered um, a speaker, an evangelical speaker, from the home country to be on the um, Christian TV um, preaching slots because it was always Americans. And I sat there one day looking and I said to my wife, you know what, they need a Kiwi on here. And she says, you don't know anything about TV, Brian. You haven't got any money. That's always the thing that's been told me. You can't, you can't. And I've always, I've put up and built something in me that says you can, you can. And so I said, we can, you know. Well, it wasn't only two weeks later that a couple came into our, our church, the Cardinal, Cardinal family. You might know them. They had a Cardinal video productions years mm -hmm. ago in Waterloo. Yes, yes. I did. Yeah, Neil Cardinal and Janine. And they came in and when I told them about, you know, how, how can I get on TV? Because I need to preach the gospel to my own people. And she said, that's easy. You know, we can do that part of it. We just need to pray that we can get a, a slot. Well, we got one. One of the Americans pulled out, and so I got that slot. 
And I was on, I was the first um, New Zealand speaker, and I couldn't believe the, how the, the response that came because they said, you speak your language, kind of not, not languages and linguistics, but the language of understanding what most of them couldn't is that's the Bible. And that's, that's my real gift. I can pull out of the scripture one verse and make it speak and come alive with stories, but then also the revelatory truth that is able to get people to really go like, wow, I got that, you know, and affect them deeply. So that's why people came after a while to my preaching. Nothing it else. Is a gift. It is a gift. It's a God thing. Yeah, God's yes. gift. It's a God gift, and um, I do have it. Um, but I shouldn't. So, because, so the Queen. Yeah, the Queen got there. me in. And she's and so she I was not happy with the gays. Not happy, yeah. A lot of them around them. And I remember if I remember, she said, I heard you once saying the only person she said it had the guts to say it on publicly that you weren't happy with the gay the rainbow movement at that time. Because I'd already had some goings on with them in 2004 with Helen Clark when she, I knew she was opening the door way back then. But anyway. I said, well, that's a bit tricky because I get taken to pieces on this, um, but I will do it because it's right. And I, I wasn't, I don't hate anybody, never have. Um, but I had this very, basically I had an out-of-body experience in my conversion. It had to be because in my farming, I really got on well with my uncles who taught me how to smoke cigars when I was about 10. <laughs> drinking, drinking beer in the back of a Zephyr Mark one, you know, because I was like the younger brother because there was only about four years between me and the youngest. Yeah, Dad was the oldest. Yeah. So I had, a, I had a great upbringing, swimming in clean rivers. The Waipa River was crystal clear those days, riding horses, um, shooting rabbits and getting fruit. The fruit trees are beautiful. Going into the Te Aumuru Hotel, as a 12, 13-year-old, the public didn't let me in because there was so many. My uncles was a big family, and the Tamaki family was a big family in town. Yes. So I just walked in there and played pool and drank beer. They used to try and stop me, you know, <laughs> trying to smoke and coffee. But, you know, essentially they were good guys. They Great guys. Yeah, they, they lived All of them, life. the whole generation. Hard workers. Hard Hard workers. Work. I had the milk cows and the old hearing was the it was the um, old bale run through hearing bone. Yeah. No, it yes. wasn't the hearing bone. It was the actual um, the old gate walk through. Yeah. Yep. So you had to do it by hand. Open up the the yep. gate and let them walk through wooden gates. So there was not wasn't the hearing bone yet that was to come. And of course, my rich white family up the up the hill, they were the first ones to have the big um, round um, the ro the rotating. Yes. The big yes. rotating sheds where you could put about 60-odd, 70-odd cows at once. They were one of the first to do it in the country. So, did you, did you feel growing up the difference between yep. your white family and your Maori family? It must have been quite amazing. Big family, hard case guys, smoking, drinking, and then the <laughs> white family well off doing – like well fight materially, it must have been. I love my grandma. I, I love my Italian grandmother. Yes, that's where I think I've got a lot of my speaking skills and speaking fast because 
she used to all the time expressive. And I mm. and I'm quite an expressive preacher. I'm a bit sort of more restrained now, but um, I used to really use my hands and walk up and down. I never stayed behind a pulpit. I would walk mm. and stop and talk, then walk here and gauge people. I think it was a in the early years when I was in the denomination that was a, a kind of a a trait I had that the old timers used to look at me and say, you know what? You preach like the old ones before them. They're talking back in the 50s and 40s or 30s, I should say. And um, the old preachers then were very expressive. But as time went on, religion kind of got a lot more stately and secular and started to restrain preachers. And yeah. We're talking with Brian Tamaki. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Um, What an amazing growing up we're going to get on to why people should vote for you but i want to cover all of this because it's so wonderful tell me um were your mum and dad religious okay um my dad's family is where i got a lot of my um i think love for people um and the love they had they had a very free-flowing style of living no worries less stressed than my european family Mm -hmm. Um, so I had one identified uncle whose name was Colin then, big guy, muscular, you know, just one of those ones out of the box that had the natural physique, but he couldn't, didn't talk too well. They used to call him, they used to call him dunce sometimes because he was slow in his mind, but he, he wasn't slow in the sense of hard work. So I loved the way that he took time with me to say to me things like, Never give up, boy. And he said to me, he's sorry to say this, but he'd say things like, you know, all the so Nathans and the Emery's down the road there, you're better than them. Okay. He says, never let you yourself be put under anybody else. So he's talking about this to me as a young kid. And I was taking it in and he'd said, Never say no. When you get up and you get something given to you, you take it, he said. And he said, and he just got that. He was very independent. He was the guy that did all the farming. He was strong naturally. I loved that physical physicality, but I loved his positivity. Mm. It was strange for the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. I asked him one day later on when I grew up, became probably a, an embedded childhood um, groove in my mind and my heart that he said, you know, you can do it. Never say no. You're better than anybody else. It was all kind of wrong, wrong philosophy of, thinking for Kiwis, totally the opposite. Because mm. um, all the others around me, my, especially my European family, were very con, um, reserved. Don't do this, don't do that. You could Yeah, fail. well, they didn't, didn't hug much, no. very quiet. So I had a taste. I loved both, and I was accepted readily with both, being the eldest grandson. Um, but I asked my uncle one day when I grew up, I said, where did you get this stuff from? Because none of the others talk like this. And you weren't like them. You didn't drink a lot. You were the one that stopped the fights in the pubs. You were the big hero. I loved your positivity. I lived on it. In fact, he got me a job. My first job was on a chainsaw operating, taking big willows out of the Waipa River. And we went to apply because we wanted the money. And I've only seen him drive the old David Brown. But when we went down there, there was this great big drag line, big crane. We went down there. This guy came out and he said, oh, who are you? And he said, we live up there. I'm applying for the job. And he said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I drive those drag lines. 
And I looked at him and I thought, no, you don't in my head. And then he said, what does he do? And he says, he's a chainsaw operator. I was, oh, I've never touched one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he hopped up in there and I watched him. He said, don't say anything and just watch me. And he hopped up there and he says, oh, I know this model. Is that the one? And the guy started to say, yeah, you push that one, push that one, that lever and that lever. So he was learning while the guy was saying, because he said, I drove a different one than this. He, he was, was no dance, he was, was he? No, he wasn't. And he learned that thing, and then he got me. And he said, "I'll show you how." And he just don't, just make sure you don't start it on the ground. Don't let it kick back, so it cuts your leg. And he said, "Just start cutting, and I'll help you." Well, that's why after I left farming, I got my own logging contract. Tell me, I, did, what did he? Why did he? Did he tell you? Did he answer your question about why he was like he was? Yeah, where did you get this from? Because it affected me. It yes. made me. He said he got it from watching a little wee TV with his brothers when Muhammad Ali was oh. fighting. And Muhammad Ali would sit there and say, I am the greatest, you know. I love I'm the prettiest on the planet. Yes. Nobody's faster than me. And I said, is that where you got it? And he said, yep. And he said, you know why, Brian? He said, because all around me I saw my brothers, my mother and father, live with their heads hung down. And he said, I didn't want to live like that. I wanted to live. So I was tall, proud, and that I could do anything, and nobody could have it over me. And I said, wow, because I picked that up. And I said, look, I've, I'm so affected by this. This is years later, just before he died. I said, really, you you gave me the basis of how I yeah. am as a person. Yeah. And it helped my leadership skills to Always, my opinion was always more important than anybody else's. And what you believed about you is more important than what they believe about you. Mm-hmm. And he always said, never let people put you down. And, wasn't um, Mah- I? Wasn't Muhammad Ali? Yeah. Truly, truly great. He was a great man. I reckon he was a great man. And I remember, I remember him. And um, I remember my mum saying, oh, you know, he talks too much because it's not the Kiwi way, right? Mm. He brags and boasts and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Yeah. And she didn't like that about him. But in hindsight, it was the greatest part of him. Yeah. because More than his boxing. More than his boxing because here he was, a poor black man, yeah. discriminated against at every turn and then going on to be so brave and courageous and never bowing his head to anyone and to lose everything that he lived for for years because of his political conviction. Well, as much as and I religious be- conviction. Yes, that's right. And as much as I believe God, it's very important that I also believe me. Yes. And if you can't believe you, then it's very hard for other people to believe you. And God right wants you to, right? He wants you to believe Oh, in yeah, yourself. absolutely. Well, the constant question to Jesus was, who are you? Mm. And he had to explain that, that his identity was, was central to his actual success in his ministry and getting through the hardships and the, the, the terrible suffering. So, um, What was your um, uncle's name again? Colin. Well, Colin of course, was the opposite of a victim. That's right. 
he he would be he would be mortified, mm. and particularly how much I despise the Maori leadership who make victims of their people. That's right. And I think that's what he saw in his own family. They'd been victimized. They brought into it. He yeah. was the only one that didn't. And he kind of took me on as his little disciple, if you like, or mentoring me. But I took a liking to him because I loved his physicality. And yeah, and then, of course, of course. Strong. But, of course, Muhammad Ali was victimized. Yeah. But he didn't accept it. No. Well, I loved him when he took the anti-war uh, position. Yes. He postured himself in the position of saying, I am standing up for what's right. Why yeah. do I want to go and kill all those little yellow men, he said, when you back here are killing us? Yeah. And, yeah. You know, they, i got nothing against them. I've got that, something against you, yeah. And that terrible story when he won gold in Rome, came back to America. For some reason, I got it that it was in Washington, D.C., oh. and he went to go to a restaurant and was refused entry. Yeah. Yeah, you just realise You can't. Imagine the – I felt upset when I was denied entry to the local pool because I wasn't vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's yeah. a bit of taste. Bit of yeah, taste it was. It. I tell you, yeah. it was. It was. Yeah. It was because all the other parents filed in and my little boy, seven-year-old, wanted to go for a swim, couldn't because he didn't have me supervising him, and we had to turn away. And my son looked at me with tears in his eyes saying, why can't we go in there, Dad? Mm -hmm. And I thought, as silly as it sounds, that's the first time I've been discriminated against. Yeah. And it was the hurt and the humiliation with my son. And you think mm -hmm. of uh, poor blacks and Maori down through the years have suffered that with their in front of their children. That's right. It's that's true. That's true. Now, tell me about you. I asked you about your parents, and we got talking about <laughs> right, Tell me sorry. about – no, I'm going to jump. Tell me – you're on really – My dad. You know, I, I, I want to tell you where you became a Christian. Okay. Well, look, you know, you, that was a good question about my dad and mum because my dad was – he was an alcoholic at that point. He got to it. He was violent. He was violent to my mum and he was violent to me. And my two brothers, the three of us a year between us, so we got very close. Um, Dad was violent. Mum, her family were atheists. Uh, funny that, because they were a godly family once, a generation, I think, before. I think the war had a lot to do with this. But a lot of them lost that faith, and they were a, a generation now of Kiwis who I believe came out with a strong faith but lost it. And... Um, my family on my mum's side, they they were godless. I was I was quite amazed at this in hindsight. But my mum, of all of them, for some reason, she believed God. It was just she was she became a Methodist, very committed Methodist. Her her mum and her father used to but probably put it out a bit, criticizing. But she held that faith. And um my dad was the opposite. So here you have, and what mum did used to dress me and my brothers up this. I'll never forget this. We were all little kids. We were living in Tiamuri. We were, uh, well, it felt like 100 miles away from the Methodist church. We had to walk 
because Dad would be um, somewhere partying and, and all weekend with his brother, some of them, or somewhere, never come home. So she would see him missing on Friday. Sometimes he just uh, get the milk the cows and gone. And wouldn't even come home for her weekend. So mum used to take us all this way. She'd spit, clear, that's why we're here. She used to comb our hair backwards, yes. spit it down. I never forget it. She would want us looking immaculate. I think she was pay, maybe um, in pain, a bit of compensation for her half breeds, I call it. Because the Methodist church at that time was very white. In fact, it was all white. And that's where she went. They wore the hats in those days and pretty much we used to get the looks and she would get the looks because she was like, are you a single mum being who you are and you got these little wee half-breed kids and damn, they're nuisances, they misbehave. We were, we were rascals, man. I mean, I don't, I'd take my head off to my mum, but I don't remember much about whatever was done or said. I remember going to Sunday school and seeing the flannel boards with Noah's Ark. A telling thing that is another trait put on me was my mum's commitment. She never missed the beat. And I think that really um, became a feature in my life that my mother would never give up. She would stand, even though all those people used to look at her, frown, wouldn't talk to her. And she had a hang of a job trying because we used to mess around in the church and make a noise and take the money out of the plate instead of putting it in. And <laughs> it's like, but I'll never forget, I'll never forget that. And never that became a, a it was grooved into my thinking and my whole psyche that when I put my hand to something, I'd do it with all my might and never be afraid, no matter what people do and how they look at you. You still do what you believe. Did your dad come right? He did. And that's how I got converted. Because what happened, me and my brothers must have all had dad issues, father issues, which I think is 95% of the population here in New Zealand I'm talking to, with the men. You can have fathers at home, but he's still invisible. My dad was a deadly dad because he was visible and invisible. He would not be there sometimes, and then he would be there. The only time we had contact with him was his fist, and um, that was quite vicious. And I found out later on that his father used to hit him at the table. He used to hit them at the – so many of them. I think the dad had to use violence to keep them quiet and stop messing around. I think he would smack him in the face. My dad said when, later on when he got converted. So – it was a generational um, behavioural pattern that was coming through. Now, I we all went away in our ways, and I was farming the farm up the road with my European family by now, and I was managing my uncle's farm because I was already working on my dad's farm, grand on my Māori farm. So I was now on my other side of the farm, and I had good relationships with them. So now it wasn't beer I was drinking. He was a whiskey drinker. <laughs> so... He used to give me a little glass of whiskey and we'd have a chat and he would talk about the Māori thing all the time. And I I realised he was racist. So my side of the family all didn't like what my mum did, was marry a Māori. So I was hearing this and I was more absorbing rather than, and he, he loved me for my work and still saw me as one of them because probably I was half and half. 
But it was an interesting growing up period of seeing how their, their thinking was and how they lived their but life. Your dad, your dad, yeah, fitted their stereotype for their daughter. He did. And look, you know what? You're right, Rodney. Maori, they they did fit the stereotype. It was unfortunate because people didn't take the time to prise it open a bit more to see that that's not really what they wanted. They just didn't no. know how to get out of it. Well, I found a way how to get out of it. And that was basically through my mum, who was threatened to leave dad and so many times. And dad used to, gee, he loved my mum, though. And she would often tell him about Jesus. And he said, don't talk to me about that Jesus stuff, that white Jesus. And um, anyway, he used to speak fluent Māori, but it was it's the native school across the way. It was um, Te Kōpua. It was one of the first ones in the Waikato there by Parongia. And he used to get smacked around the legs of the cane or on his hands because he, he only could speak um, te reo Māori. So my grandmother was concerned, and his third sister down was a very brainy woman. She became a district health nurse in those days, which is a very esteemed, yeah. esteemed job. Her name was Anne. She speaks very fluent English. So she taught the two older brothers how to speak English, and in the end, they couldn't speak Māori after many years, just English, because she wanted me, the grandson, not to speak Māori. I'd be a fluent Māori speaker if I didn't, if this was all the other way around. Mm. So I, I obviously was raised up in an English-speaking world. But my dad was at a party one night. However your audience takes this or anybody, it's true. And it had a big effect on me and therefore tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of other people. He was drinking out of a – they used to drink out of AG, the old AG jars yes. for preserving yes. peaches. And yes. They would tip their beer from the – because they had the um, mini Jones. tanks. No, oh, mini tanks. Yeah, yeah. Hose through the window. Yeah, and it had the like a gasoline yeah. pump, and they'd fill these up, and they'd just drink themselves silly. He said, in his own words, he lifted it up, and he just saw a, a light. It was like a face in it that said, "I want you now to finish this, and I'm going to come into your life. So pick, put the jug down, and go back and talk to your wife. She will tell you how." And he put it down. He said. And all his, but the rest of them said they looked at him and he looked like he's just totally, you know, out of it. Not drunk out of it, but there was something else going on because he put it down and they said, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. And he went and shut the door. He never touched alcohol again in his life. He never, I think, mixed with that, like that way. Again, his mixing enough that would be different. He went home, told mum, they prayed he received Christ on his life. The first thing I'd do was to come and visit me and Hannah. We were married. I met Hannah by then. I'd gone to Tukaroa for four or five years. I had my own business, a very successful logging company, and I was playing rugby. Rugby. I played for the junior Waikato, and I played league on Sunday, so I got chosen for the New Zealand Maoris, and I was a trialist for the Kiwis. But... What happened was, and I was a music, I'm a musician as well. So all of that was the Kiwi way. I was living the ultimate Kiwi way of life. And I had all I needed to have money, rugby, league, booze. I had I was a musician now, I was in a band traveling. I met Hannah. She was pregnant with our first child. We weren't married. 
and I was on the road with this band and I was messing around. I was really in a mess. I came home one day, my dad and mum were sitting in the kitchen and they were talking to Hannah. And my dad said, I looked and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm changed, son. And I said, what do you mean changed? He said, I've asked Christ into my life. And I told him to get out. I said, you can leave when you're ready. And um, Hannah said, no. And she sat there. By this time, we were having huge problems. Um, you're right, really? I'm right. I'm just listening. Yeah. And I walked out of the room. I'm crying. I walked out of the room. And by this time, I never, I've not told people this much. At night, I started to put a pillow over Hannah's head because she had developed asthma in her pregnancy. She couldn't breathe and it was loud. This is how, this is what, how bad I got. And I wasn't that sort of person. But I just couldn't cope with what was going on and I was fighting inside me. Probably a, a bit in this toward my dad. But I wasn't to realize that my other brother, my younger one, had it worse. So um, Hannah and I went out to the kitchen. I said, I'm not listening to you. And I walked into the passageway and I, and I got around the corner, leaned against it. And Hannah said, what happened, Dad? And he said, I found Christ. And I thought, you know, what a loser. My mum was happy and then... Hannah started to complain. Brian has put a pillow over my head to stop me because I'm breathing too loud. I've got asthma. And my father, and this is what I heard around the corner, he said, Jesus can heal that. And I thought, what the heck? And I and he said, she said, well, how's that? And she said, he said, we can pray for you now and he'll heal you. And I thought, oh, no. And he, they prayed for her. Anyway, they left. As time went on, I didn't think about it. The following few days, I think it was about the following week, I noticed she never had the rasping anymore. And I said to her, hey, what's happened to that asthma? And she said, I, I think I've been healed, Brian. I said, what do you mean? She said, I, don't, I haven't used the asthma um, device and I haven't caught it. And I said, are you telling me that you got healed? And she said, that's the, I was bad, Brian, you know, you were trying to suffocate me. And I said, well, yeah, I noticed it's gone, and this is over a week. So I said, let's go to the doctor, make sure. We went to the doctor, Rodney. The doctor said she's completely free of asthma. She, she hasn't got it. And there's no signs on her lungs or anything like that because she had all the x-rays and all that sort of stuff went through. She didn't have, she hasn't had it since, Rodney. But what happened was, for me to even consider this Jesus Christ, I had to have a major, a real major intervention in me because I was not a religious man. He came back the following week and said there was a big a meeting that he had listened to this at Tūranga Waiwai Marae. He was from there, you see. So he was saying there was a big meeting there of Māori Christians and there was a speaker from America, a black and African, African-American. I said, nah, I'm not interested. And he said, there's a big hangi, and it's on Saturday, and I think it's your day off. And I said, 
I said, I'll think about it. Well, cut a long story short, I went. I went for the for the hangi. But I was sitting at the back and this guy started preaching about Christ and something was burning inside of me, a warmth, a warmth, a heat. And the more he said that name, Jesus Christ, the more I felt myself breaking down inside. When he finished, I thought, finally, I'm going to go, you know. I had my smokes. I wanted to have a smoke, and my Mark II zipper was handy out the back. And Hannah got up and started walking to the front because the guy said, who wants to receive Jesus? And I thought, where the hell is he going? And anyway, really, in my heart, I wanted to go, but I was was the whole Kiwi way of life and the drink and my friends and the rugby, and I was really on the brink of being chosen for um, the Kiwis, and um, I had my back, just everything. But in a split second inside my belly, I actually believed what this guy said about Christ. So I went to go, I thought, no, I'll wait for it. And as I went toward the doorway, I took a left, and I started going straight down, I caught up with her. And I went to grab her arm and she slapped my hand off and said, what are you doing here? I'm going to leave you after this. I said, I'm not here about leaving or whether I'm going to be with you. I've been a real mongrel to you. I haven't been nice. I haven't really been violent. It was only that one time where I tried to put a bow just to shut her up. But I said, I want to come and ask Christ into my life. And she said, well, you do it for you. I'll do it for me. And I said, yes. Well, I prayed in the back with her. And at that point in moment, in 1979 of Easter, I made a decision that flipped my whole life around. And that was four months after my 21st. I was drunk as a skunk. Never, I hated religion. And here I was now. I'd asked them in my life, and then I went home and I went to the little church. They filled me with this other person called the Holy Spirit, and I didn't know that one either. I went home, and that evening I had an out-of-body experience where I went out of my body, through the roof with this incredible love and power all at the same time. And I I was asking, what is this? And I heard a voice say to me just simply, I will use you greatly in this nation. And bang, I feared. And when I feared, I was back in my body. One of the things when I was out of that part going through, the brightness of it, captivated me, but I could see the power lines. And what I saw in the power line was a little wee bit of string with a little wee parachute. So it must have been a parachute. I could, I visually saw it, like he wanted me to see it. So when I come to, Hannah thought I was dead on the ground. And I said, no, I just, I'm pretty sure I met Jesus. And I said, hold on. And I ran to the front door, went out the steps, and I looked up into the, down the corner where I knew there it was, and I'd never seen that before, a little bit of string in the power line with a little parachute. I knew what I had was real. And so what happened, Rodney, that flipped me from what I was. I did a whole 360, all the workers at work. I changed virtually in an instant. And in an instant, I stopped smoking. I stopped my drinking. I stopped my, I even stopped swearing. Nobody told me, just went. And I devoured the Bible. I even took it to work. And I was working with the roughest guys in, in the town because I was working in forestry then. And we worked with a, I worked with a gang of about 12, 15 guys. We had a bit of a reputation. 
The next day, even when I came, they knew something was different. They said, why are you different? What's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I was a bit shy, but I said, oh, nothing. And one guy said, looks like you had a religious experience. And I said, I have. And, you know, from there, Rodney, when I actually um, affected my whole gang and got them in the end, many of them gave their lives to Christ, and I influenced them. And from there, that's where our journey started. And I don't want to talk too much, but that's how that happened. And my dad and mum today are still alive. Yeah, and wonderful. my my wife and I, my 10 grandchildren, the oldest is married, the eldest is married. They're all Christians. My 10 grandchildren are all Christians. The married one that got married to her husband. My three great um, great grandchildren all come to the same church. We're all in the same movement and love God. So that one decision not only affected me and my way I treated my wife, my whole life, it, tre- it got my family all together on the same path of light. And then from there, I've had the privilege of being used marvellously by God in my own country and in Australia and in Pakistan, India, and Europe, parts of Europe and America. So that one decision um, has allowed me to influence um, hundreds of thousands of people for the better. That's the most beautiful story. I've, that is so wonderful. And to think the joy that you now have in your life mm. compared to the emptiness and anger and desperation that you otherwise would have had. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, I've been and that's great 43 about- years. 43 great, years, yeah. Rodney, now. And the great thing about it is your great success serves only to make you humble mm. because you realise that you there's something bigger in you. It's not a, you, you. I've noticed, like, as you tell the story, there's a humility in it. Mm. Tell yeah. me, Tell me about... Do you mind if we go over time? No, you can go anywhere you like, Rodney. Because I have to say this is important to tell the story, and I don't want to come along and say, look, I've got to stop now. If you're happy for time. Yeah, um, I've I've made the time. Great. Tell me, that is an extraordinary story. Like it's once we're warriors through to a great, family loving network by allowing Jesus into your life. Yeah. That one thing. Yeah. Well I've I've existed or I've fed off that one revelation. My you don't you don't need to have a great explosive testimony or experience. You're saved by faith through grace. And I tell people, never try to repeat or think anything less of your your salvation because it's when you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth. But I I think for me it, it was important because God had a extra bit of work for me to do. It was never going to be easy. Obviously, he took the all the parts of my past were useful. Mm. Nothing's a waste of your past. 
even when it was in in bad terms. It's all redeemable. And so how I was raised and the two families, the two sets of races, um, having a very positive uncle in the middle of probably a victimised generation, I was able to grow with a very strong, um, my personality was strengthened. And I think that was important ultimately for the apostolic uh, gift that's uniquely been put on my life. I understand it. It's not always, it's it's a different gift from the pastor, evangelist, teacher, prophet, first apostles, and um, the apostles were the cornerstone. And now in the church globally, apostles should really, uh, they're spiritual fathers. And that's where a revelation 20, 15 years ago came out of a service. But there's a long story and I can't take too much of your time, but I do know this, that when I came out of a service one morning, I spoke about putting the man back into the man because the church was so effeminate at that time. And I say that with not much of the of the rainbow movement was around then. It was just that all the – it seemed that women were at church and the men were watching rugby and drinking on Sunday. And I was quite a, a bit of a, a misfit at that time because I was a 21, 22-year-old, long hair, pretty good physically in sport. And I was gifted. I didn't need re- I didn't need religion. I was apprehended. It was like I was taken. Now, um, in saying that, um, Hannah came, we came out of a service one day and I said, oh, how's that, honey? That was great, wasn't it? She said, yeah. So I started driving. I thought, she's troubled. And um, then she said, Brian. And when she said it like that, I thought, oops, okay. Did I go too long? Did I? And she said, you have to be a father to all these men. And I said, they got their own dads. And she said, no, they haven't. And many of them have got no dads, violent dads, or dads that are there but are not there. And she just said nothing more. And I was driving along and I was thinking, man. Anyway, it must have been a word from God through my wife to me. And I thought about it for a good week or two, and then I decided to do something about that. She was right. How many men can speak the real honest truth about what's inside them? And she said another thing, you know what? You didn't share a lot of things with me. I had to drag it out of you. Now, here's the thing. She was dra- she was raised by her father, who was European, and her Maori mother left when she was a little child. I was virtually raised by my European mum, and my Maori dad was absent. So I was raised by a mother. She was raised by a father, both Europeans. So what she said, that having a dad was more uh, emotionally and mentally beneficial or an advantage than a single mum trying to raise sons and daughters. Mm. There was emotional and I would say the thinking process of my life were totally out of whack, the insecurity, fear could be probably a part of it, and yet she was completely um, stable and well-established emotionally, mentally, and we both concurred that it was the role of the dad was vital to the daughter and son's emotional and mental well-being. And, of course, mums go a heap of a way to 
make sure that the family is is cared for or mothered and soft. And that's why sons gravitate more to their mums because a lot of dads didn't know how to relate to their sons and daughters too well. So you see that big divide. And I remember in the inmates in prison when once they were sent, uh, asked to send a Christmas card to their mothers, about 95% plus of the inmates sent them to their mums. And when it came to sending one to dad, um, something like 7 or 8% of them sent, sent one to the father, the others didn't want to send it. So it shows you the massive, we've got a massive father problem in our country. So um, that was... Tell us, tell, us about, yeah. tell us about Destiny Church. Okay, there's so many long stories to that because I, when I went to church, I didn't know anything about church and I was still farming. We went to the AOG first of all. But when I drove in, you're going to probably think this is not, not me. We had the 186 Holden then, came in early and Hannah got dressed and I got dressed. We had the one child baby then. And we come into the car park and she says, oh, there's a park. And I said, no, no, I'll get that one over there. Went to the next one and I went past that one. And she says, what are you doing? Then I hit the exit and I took off back home, 12, 13K back out to the farm. We had a bit of an argument on the way home, and she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, I didn't want to go in. And she said, why? Because I saw those people at the doorway who must have been door greeters, and I was a very self-conscious person, Rodney. Even though I was brought up with, you know, believing yourself as strong, I had that issue that I couldn't talk properly. And I had trouble with pronunciation, and I still do today. With certain words, I'll dodge them. I'm the same. And um, I have a terrible, in fact, um, my son is verbally dyspraxic and I think I have it. And it exhausts me to talk because I have to concentrate so hard on the words. Yeah. And I can't say odd words and I feel foolish. I can't say often people's surnames that are foreign or Maori. Mm. And I mean no disrespect. And they'll tell it to me and I'll still mangle it. And I feel so embarrassed. And it's funny, I spent most of my life talking and I struggled to talk. Yeah. That was me. You and me both. Well, I had incredible self-consciousness and that's what the self-consciousness was. So I was quiet when I used to go to parties and pubs be in the corner drinking and just looking around, it was with the guys, and you just grunt to each other, the men. Mm. But when it came to this, like, I could not. I felt inferior, and that was a bad problem because of my speech. I couldn't pronounce a lot of words then, and I didn't talk a lot, and so it made me self-confident. Hannah knew that. So that's why I drove home, and she said, well, look, you've got to face up to it, Brian, if you're going to love God and serve God, and I didn't actually say that I was going to serve him like that, <laughs> but I knew I knew from that experience I had because yes. I told her. So she said, no, you met him, and boy, that got me, and I said I did. So she told me the story about Moses. Moses had a speech impediment. I did That's why, that. yeah, in Exodus, God said, you'll go face Pharaoh, and you will speak on my behalf, and he said, for Lord, I can't speak from a slow tongue. 
what we found out that Moses had a stutter or, or a problem. So he says, send my brother Aaron. He's a smart speaker. And God said, all right, for now, I'll let Aaron's, but he can only speak what you tell him, not what he wants, because I'll only speak to you. So there you go. When God chooses somebody, doesn't matter what problems or hang-ups, he's going to still work with that chosen person until they get it. They will come through it. And that's what happened eventually, because his brother started to take power to himself and take it away from the true man, it was Moses. So God rectified that. And he took Aaron out of the way, and then Moses got confidence. He said, you don't have to say much. It's how you say it. And he started to speak with authority of God. And that's what I, I really started to basically digest and feast on the Bible. And I wasn't really, I was only reading Pray Boy and uh, Repent House. <laughs> <laughs> we were all in forestry. That's all yes. the magazines. That's <laughs> right. What else do you read? Do you like the way I put it? Yes. Pray Boy. Anyway. That stuff all went because I had a hunger for God's word. And I I went, I loved, I, I got into church. I got over myself. And that was the break. I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelations right through. And I did it in my lunchtimes. Outside work, I'd work hard. Then I'd read hard too. And I just devoured this stuff, not always understanding it. But that didn't matter. Was, it was getting in. And I knew I knew deep inside later on I, I would have a great mission. I knew there was a great purpose. So I thought everything I was doing would not be a waste and everything I've been through would not be wasted. It would all work together to get the right mix for what God wanted to use in a certain time. And it proved to be right. And um, I then joined the church there and I was in the, then I went to the apostolic church because my dad and mum took me there. The Apostolic Church was a Pentecostal church. And mum eventually got filled with the Holy Spirit, too, from a Methodist. And my mum and dad, and I went to this little wee church. It was raging, but the music was shocking. So the pastor said, is he a musician here? And I put my hand up. That became a brutal habit. Because <laughs> like, well, next Sunday would be, who, who wants to go to visit the prison in Waikir? I put my hand up. <laughs> Um, who wants to do the youth work in town? I put my hand up. Who wants to be a door greeter next? I put my hand up. After a while, I had to say, "Can um, somebody else put their hand up, Brian? You just wait. You got about twelve jobs now, you know." Mm. But I was doing. I was so hungry. And Hannah and I were like that. We went on a total hundred, one hundred and fifty percent. We sold ourselves out as young twenty-year-olds. So I went on the street, much to the. Well, to the embarrassment and shame of my family, because the town was full of my family. And I'd go outside the pub with a guitar. Now I changed from playing Deep Purple and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, the Eagles and the Doobie Brothers to playing. And I rocked it up a bit. I always rocked our music up in the church, and the, some of the church elders used to complain, but I used to get the band together. And I said, look, we write our own songs. And that's what we did. We used to write songs, and I had guitars, and I brought my brother into the drums and bass. We had um, the electronic stuff with the synthesizers. So I already was doing modern music that was out of its time. So after 13 years, and I went away to Bible college because I knew I had to get some formal input. I knew I had the brain. I just never – I left school when I was 
since I got to 15, play sports and earn money to drink. So I went to the Tineco uh, Bible Training Centre in Wellington. It was a theological Bible college with uh, 15 subjects, university level. So I took a whole year off work. It was a bit of a bit of a hard, difficult time. I was still working, but I had the money. I had it all together, cash for the fee. Um, had to really battle out because Hannah was pregnant with our last child, third child. She said, we're going to Bible college and I'm pregnant. And what do you? I said, I have to, honey. So we agreed. And I took 13 subjects, uh, 15 subjects, paid the fees up front, which was unusual in those days. And she questioned me about all the cash in the bag, you know. <laughs> it looked a bit. And I said, well, <laughs> how does everybody pay here? And they said, well, they actually, some of them were still paying from five years, 10 years before. No, I said, I got the full price. I pay up front. And I went through that. It was one of the most important times of my life. I was one of the highest achievers in the history of the college. Two subjects, 100% in Hebrew and um, in pastoral uh, studies. And I did another extra five years in correspondence with to Brussels and Belgium, where I qualified. And I was only about six or seven theses short of my PhD and, and honours. But I didn't do it because I took, my life took a turn when I, 13 years in the apostolic church, and I grew the, the biggest and fastest growing church in the movement. But some of the guys found that I was breaching the traditions of the apostolic church. Brian's got modern music and he's got drums and guitars and he's um, got all these people in there from all sorts of backgrounds that need to be properly, you know, say it was, you know, I was literally saving people off the street and a lot of Maoris were attracted to my ministry and um, European too, but more Maoris because I wasn't my hometown for a little while. I shifted to Rotorua in Rotorua and my two brothers with me we were all very visionary minded. And we had an idea to start a, a um, tourist business, tourism business. Um, and all the tourist um, tourism that day was held in the big hotels. Mm-hmm. So they had the Māori portion where they did a haka and a poi, and then they shifted them off and they gave them a feed in the hotels. Me and my brothers come up with the idea of actually taking that out of the hotels and putting it on an actual marae so that people got experience and walking into the marae and the whole thing of a hangi, watching all of the weaponry use of the taiaha and seeing how they lived with a bit of bush around it. Mm-hmm. So we had that idea. and. It would also give a lot of our people work. Well, we sent the first email out and we got immediately the same week from the biggest two hotel chains in the country sent an email to us threatening us. That if you boys, you boys do this, we'll run you out of town kind of thing. You know, because it was all, they had total. They had the, yeah, control. Yeah. But this is when my childhood grooves of don't let anybody else put you down, do not let their opinions affect yours. And the brothers, one of them was already in tourism, my second brother. He was driving the tourist buses in Rotorua, working for a company. And my younger brother, unfortunately, was riding for Hell's Angels. <laughs> he was a he was a druggie and he was selling big. He had about four motorbikes. And I hadn't seen him for about four or five years. But we all met. It was a long time. So he had a great session. We hugged and they all he looked at me and said, 
that year, come and one of those women, Kristen's Brian, you know, my younger brother, said, yeah. And I said, you become a hell's angel. <laughs> he said, yeah. <laughs> what a fork in the road that is. Yeah, and he was quite notorious, my younger brother, in, in the uh, New Zealand hell's angel scene. So we told him the idea. And I said, you guys should do it. Sell your sell your bikes, Doug. That's how we get the money. And he looked at, looked at us, what? He had four of them. I said, sell them. Do legitimate business. You know, get out of that. And he said, oh, you know, I was thinking of leaving because I've got a girl and we've got a couple of kids that weren't married and that and that. They all knew about the Christian faith, but they weren't. They were backslidden. So I started to influence their lives quite a bit. And I said, look, you start the tourism business called Tamaki Tours, and I'm starting my church here because I've left the Apostolic Church. They've blessed me. And I'm gonna, I gave them a document before I left the, the, the big board of um, reverends and apostles and bishops and got together because I said to them I needed to make a ship then. This was um, way back in 1985, 86. So they said, oh, we'll send us something. And I got something like this, just a, you know, a little document, about 10 pages, and I gave it to them the next board meeting. There's about 22 of them, I think, and they all went through. Some of them, the younger ones, were a bit more jealous, so they just clicked through it like this. Nah. The others looked at it and took time and poured over it, and they all said, well, it's interesting, but um, they came to the conclusion it didn't fit and it wouldn't work where they were, the apostolic churches, the history from the Welsh revival. I respected that. But the um, superintendent really loved him and I, and... I said, well, look, I have to ask to be released from serving here for 13 years. And they all got upset a bit. But the superintendent said, no, I think Brian and Hannah need to be released to start what they need to do. And they did. He did. He came and blessed us and released us. I wanted their blessing. He gave it. You know what I gave them that day? Was the blueprint to Destiny Church. How amazing. You don't know, nobody knows about that denomination today. They broke up, they come apart, it fragmented. It's been a small church denomination for years. Whereas you mentioned that name, probably not only New Zealanders, but a lot of Australians know Destiny Church. Mm. And the Lord said, I will make you a great person, Brian. Well, you mentioned my name, and most New Zealanders, either way, whether it's negative or positive, they know. And I could never have done that, and I wouldn't want to have done that. But this is all for him in my country. Yeah. Your wife plays has played a huge role in your life. Do you know I love yes. the I love the picture of all that you put her through. Terrible. Terrible what you did to her. Yeah. And all that you put through her, when she went to receive Jesus at the Marai, she mm. said, well, you went to take her arm. And most wives would be so happy to receive their husband back. Yeah. But she said, you do what you're going to do. Because she I'm was, she's, yeah. she's a strong woman. She is the mother of this nation as far as I'm concerned. Yes. She's, oh, man, I've, she's got, anyway. Um, she was that's making, a great thing, wasn't it? That was a powerful moment. That, that's that's a um, unique woman. Yeah. 
She was prepared to lose the relationship if it wasn't fake. If I was faking it to yeah. just keep her around or whatever I wanted, she put it to the test right there. Don't because most come. men, most men, and I include myself, we sort of do things to get through the moment with our wives, yep. Yep. right? And yep. it's not real. We actually haven't changed. No. Oh, look, I was drunk, honey. I'll never happen again. Yeah. And they believe you because they want to believe you. And you go up to receive Jesus and she thinks, oh, he's Brian's just saying this, so I'll stay with him. But she she wanted you to do what you wanted to do and she'd do what she wanted to do and she'd meet you on the other side. Well, she wouldn't have known that I was, I had a burning, burning sensation in the middle yeah. of my tummy during that, that guy's preaching. I don't even know who he was to this day. Every time he mentioned the name Jesus Christ, whack, it was there. Um, so I, I just was going to write it off to being soft. But when she got up and moved, she was already, she decided because she was healed. Don't, yes. what people, whatever people don't, doesn't matter what you think about it. Mm. It was real to me. It would have happened. That was the way my path to God apprehended me. So when I walked up, I see how strong the self-consciousness was. It was a terrible disease and most inferiority complex. I think most people suffer from some level or another. But I think it was really bad in me because of that impediment and never having any active encouragement after I lost my relationship with my uncle, you're your own in the world. Um, you have to fight all those things that were going on. Anyway, I th I believe that Hannah is um, an incredible part of the ma a true matriarch of this family. And now when I see her, because she supported me when I started and the call came and we started the first church. It was a funny, funny story itself. She supported a fumbling, you know, sort of stumbling into things rather than the accuracy. Yes. My first message was filled with we had and we had a the Methodist couple that were the stewards of the Methodist Church when we were kids came for my first service. He he remembered the Tamaki boys, and you heard us started a church. He probably wanted wife, the money back. He probably, his, his wife was an English teacher at school, and I my first message was a mess. <laughs> but she even corrected me with a few words when they come and see me. But they both had tears in their eyes, and they said, we, we've decided to leave the Methodist church where we've been for 40-plus years or whatever. It was longer than that. We want to join you, Brian, because I we have never felt such fire of the spirit coming out of a person than we had this morning. It was almost the words didn't matter. It was what was flowing out of you. We felt that. And even though there's only 15 people here, most of them were my cousins and the broken side of my family, and I had one or two. I had my grandmother, our Italian grandmother there. And and it was just like I my first message was. Can you believe this? This is it's not egotistical either. I will build New Zealand's greatest church one day. And that's what I titled it. And I actually got a letter from the 
Presbyterian minister rebuking me for being arrogant. Because the only way I could get it out to get people to come was to advertise it, and I put that title in there. And so I, I got um, some stick for that because I got involved with the local minister's fraternal. And I remembered, I thought, I didn't mean it like that. And I thought, did that, was I sounding, I said to Hannah, was that, is that pride proudful? You know, and I, she said, no, you meant that genuinely. Well, I did, because I already had destined to me as a seed. It was already there. And it's hard to explain to people when you're talking to them and doing things and you know something that's yet to happen or you hear it before it comes out in the news or you see a picture of this church with many churches and pastors. So it's like much of what was going on today, you're hidden a bit. So It's an point, interesting thing. Yeah, It's an interesting thing for me, Brian, listening to you because – there's that fine line between coming across as arrogant yeah. and being confident and also that you've been chosen by God and yeah. therefore you're special and coming across as special. And so I, I struggle with it yeah. because I think, oh, who the hell does Brian Tamaki think? You know, yeah. there he is starting the greatest church and God's chosen him. He's not chosen me and he's got all these skills. But there's two aspects to it. One is the Muhammad Ali bit where you actually, to achieve great things, you've actually got to be full of self-confidence and to be full of self-confidence means articulating it. Yeah. Well, I and, remember this. And then you are chosen by God as you define it, as you do, as you as you've explained it. That's the that's the misery sometimes, the pain. The pain is the pain and the purpose go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And I I would never have you probably like Moses probably would never have gone out and left Egypt if he knew he had to take five or six million people through the Red Sea. Um God doesn't tell him everything. No. <laughs> Till he gets there. And it's good that I didn't know anything either because I probably would have been a coward too and pulled out because you think, oh no, I don't want I don't want that part of it, you know, and this part of it. Because I remember David going to the battlefield. And one of the things that was interesting to me is always struck me about David. He arrived and he was he had this self-assurance and his his belief and his confidence in what he had was basically what got him through um, the criticisms, the potential distractions and mocking, and even the defiance and the threat from the Goliath, the enemy. When he comes to the battleground, the first thing he does, because he's sent there to give see how his, his brothers are doing, bring back a word how the boys are doing to his father. So he was young, being in the wilderness, He's actually shepherding, killed a bear and a lion, saved the, saved the sheep. So he comes with these cheeseburgers for his brothers, and he hears this bellowing giant. And the first thing he inquires about was, what did I hear there? Was there a reward going on? And they said, yeah, tax-free all your life if you kill the giant. The person does that, gets the king's daughter, and he said, mm-hmm. And the other one was, all the treasures and riches you want. So he said, shucks. Can you repeat that again? And he does, and they tell him. So the reward, he was not fighting for nothing. 
You don't go into battle to fight for nothing. You fight for something. And so he went, and his brother said, oh, here you are. What are you doing crying about the battle? You're just a proud, insolent um, brother. Go back and look after those sheep. So there's the derision. There is the brothers who were jealous already about his confidence. So they tried to pop his bubble of uh, belief and self-confidence in him. David said, what have I got to do with you guys? Don't you know that we have got a cause? There's a cause for our country. Why are you sitting on the hillside with Saul in fear? Considering we serve the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So David said, and whatever, he moved on. He said to the king, Saul, who was frozen in fear, he said, I'll go and fight the giant. And again, the king said, you can't. There you go, because you're just a youth. And he's a warrior from his youth. He's a champion, and he was. But David said, I killed the lion and the bear. My history is I'm not afraid. I've taken care of an enemy, and I'll take care of this guy. So the rest of the story, he went out and he killed. But before he did, it was interesting. The giant said, what is this? You humiliate me by sending me this little dog who's not even a soldier. He's not one that's chosen to be in the part of the elite army. And he's just a farmhand. I love it. And then he does something. He, the giant curses him and says, by the gods that I worship. This is what for the Philistine people miss this part. So Goliath was actually representing every false god and religion that there was in the country at that time. And I'm pretty sure this is the deeper reason of the drive was a spiritual one. And they wanted to rule over these Israelites. And David says, well, I come to you in the name of my God, the one true God. Today I'll defeat you. So this could be very arrogant because he goes and starts to give him an outline on how the battle is going to go before it's happened. And that he's going to lose his head. He's going to drop him. And he's going to lose his head off. And I'll have a great victory today. So... I looked at all this and I've read it a thousand plus thousand times over. And all I see is somebody like me. The Isn't same feeling. Great? Yeah. We're not, it's not ego. It's not like he's up himself. Oh, don't worry about that. There's plenty of things that can, you know, keep me humble every day. Um, it's having that confidence. If you don't have it, you can't have courage. And courage is contagious. It is. Fear, is, fear is contagious too. Yes. But courage, courage is stronger. And that's what David did, and he had a great victory. You all know about David and Goliath, but nobody talks about the fact is that David had a big word war. It took him five minutes to probably kill Goliath, I think. But it took him about an hour and a half to have word battles with his brothers. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read that straight after this. Tell me. Um, yeah. You give courage to men. Yeah, absolutely. That's my joy. And you know what to be a man is. Mm -hmm. Well, the Man Up program we started out of doing it with those boys. I started it way back with those guys. And um, when I got three of them together with me in the room, I didn't have no idea. And I, I told them my story, what I told you in depth. And the, the two of them had been just out of prison. One of them 
was um, a mess and a nightmare to society. When they heard my story and I told the parts of it much more, they they couldn't believe it. They looked at me and the guy next to me said, can I tell you something I've hidden? I said, yeah. And this guy, for the first time in his life, went into the depths of the cellar of his life and pulled out the monster that was basically damaging and destroying his life all up to this time. He was a 50-year-old man, I think, at that time, 51. And he pulled out the terrible rape that happened to him from one of the men that were at a party. And they had a party at his place. One of the men got him, the kids, raped them. Never brought it up, and he talked about it and brought it out, and he was just bawling his eyes. And I stood up and I thought, how am I going to? You know what? I did, all I did was say nothing. I grabbed him and I hugged him. That guy hugged me, must have been, it seemed like forever. And after a while, he hugged me so tight, I just about couldn't breathe. And my whole jersey at that time was soaking wet with his tears and just hugged him. And the other two end up doing the same thing. And I discovered that so many men had so much hurt locked up inside and they just needed somebody to unlock that and really care for them and give them something where they could talk to another man and be released and validated that they are okay. And that's what I did. And that was the beginning of the healing of those three that started the whole movement. You've done thousands, uh, tens of, you've helped thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. It's in Australia. It's big in Australia. It's in all the major cities. And Australians are taking it by storm now. Man up. It's big time there. Because there's no... The media haven't defiled the name of destiny on the Gold Coast. It's big. Yes. They just they were on Channel Nine News uh, just exactly. recently for Man Up, and they, they announced to talk about destiny, and everybody just loved it because there was no pre- preconceived um, idea that this this media totally blighted and, and contaminated destiny in my name. So people already have a a um, perception. And it's a wrong one, unfortunately, and so it's a battle. But over there, it isn't. So it's taken for what it is, and it's a it's got a. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Brian Tamaki. What a what a morning we've had. Tell me, Brian, <laughs> who do we vote for to get you into Parliament? <laughs> yeah, well, I I don't know. I was crazy enough to stand this time. I've never stood before. I've always been. I remember when you were in the Act Party, Rodney. Mm. Um, one of my neighbours, well, not far, he wasn't an exact close neighbour, but he was down the road, was um, Mike Moore, was it? Yes. Yeah. Mike Moore from the Labour Party. Yeah, was that, that was him, I think, was it? He was out at Maraitai. He's, I think it was Anyway, don't anyway, worry. Anyway, don't worry about that. But Who do we vote for? Who do we give our party vote to? Um, party vote Freedoms New Zealand. If you want somebody that's transparent and honest, and one of the first things that I would do, and I was asked by the media the other day in Wellington, what's the biggest or the, the one policy, Brian, that you put forward? And I basically said to them very clearly, this, uh, this is what I said to them. I wrote it down to make sure I got it right. I'd restore Christianity as our national founding faith again. Mm. That's what I said. I'd restore uh, Christ back into this country. 
I'd bring prayer back into Parliament. I would honour our flag and our national anthem so that everybody in this country knew that when you proudly sing, God defend New Zealand, that you knew who that God was. And you know beautiful. that you understand the malaise that is affecting New Zealand. I haven't talked about it on here because it would be too much spiritually. Yes. Yeah, but that what is affecting New Zealand is a deep cultural, spiritual void. That's right. And an evil that is swept across New Zealand. Brian, well, exactly so. Brian, would you mm. come back and talk to us more? I, I will. I'll talk to you, Rodney, if you want. No problems. Uh, well, look, we have covered... Uh, well, like, I feel as though... We have covered you, and what I'd like to cover now is next, when you come back on, is more about the church, Destiny New Zealand, the Man Up program, and your view of politics. I have to say, it was a very powerful testimony from you, yeah. and I I feel privileged and honoured that you would share it with me and our listeners. Thank and, you very much. Um, I, I think you're very, very wonderful. That is Bishop Brian Tamaki. What an amazing story. You can see why he can reach into the hearts and the tortured souls of so many men because he's not talking to them from a distant place. He's talking to them from the very place that they've come from. And it's authentic and it's real. And you can also see, if you're a believer, why a man with his gifts and his upbringing and his life, if you believe, why God would choose him and why God would give him the skills that he so evidently has. What a great story, and I hope that we get to hear more. We will, because he's Ooh. an amazing man. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, we're lucky today because we often talk about what's happening with young people and we often talk about what's happening in universities and we don't actually know. I guess we know if we've got kids or nieces or nephews that are going to university, but I spent far too many years as a student and far too many years as a lecturer at university, but they seem 
from all accounts, to be quite different places. But we have a student joining us, Jack Marshall Lee. Have I got that right, Jack? That's correct, Rodney. Yep. And you're 22 years old and you're attending university. Which university are you attending? I'm studying at Massey University in Palmerston North. Ah, oh, good for you. The original university. What are you studying there? I originally tried for pre-vet, didn't make it. I'm now doing a Bachelor of Agricultural Science. Good for you. That'll be far better than being a vet. <laughs> yeah, that's what I hope. Uh, well, I can imagine being a vet. Look, I don't know, struggling with people's pets, you know, and maybe I'm going to offend readers, but you know how people look at pets and they like become an addition to the family. They're like a little baby or something. And the poor yeah, vet has got, got them all on sort of life support and just about got them in an incubator and all the rest of it. And I grew yeah. up on a farm and you just go and shoot them. Yep, same. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you see, you see, you'd a have yep. you'd have a poor young woman coming in with her aged dog who's got needs a hip replacement, and you'd say I'd shoot it, and you just you'd be in the paper. <laughs> yeah. Tell well, me, you you grew up where? Um, I was originally born in Queensland. I moved to New Zealand at age seven. Uh, you didn't come on your own, did you? No, I came with my family and I. Yeah. Got two brothers, mum and dad. I'm the oldest of two brothers. Um, yeah. Three brothers. We've got two youngest. And we moved over to North Canterbury, Ashley. It's a little. Oh, I know, town. Ashley. I grew up in Rangura. Oh, no way. Yep. So mum and mum attended Rangura High back in the day. What was her name? Yvonne Marshall Lee. Hmm. She would be so much younger than me, your mum. The <laughs> name doesn't ring a, ring a bell, but I know Ashley well, just across the Great Ashley River. Yep, yep And she would have gone to, did she go to Rangura Borough School, Rangura High School? Yeah, Rangura High School. Yeah. There you go. And so you grew up in Ashley. What, did you have a bit of a farmlet there? Yeah, so we've got 10 acres out there. We um, rear our own beef. We have chickens. We've got fruit and veggies. Um, wow. got, yeah, pretty much everything. Small. Can you wait? Can you can you raise cattle on ten acres? Two, and ten twenty sheep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And do you butcher it, or do you send it off to be butchered? Uh, so we get it home killed. Someone comes and shoots it on the farm for us, and then we send it off to be processed. And then it comes back, and we stock the freezer up for a year, and then repeat. So you get someone to shoot it for you, and do they do the first cutting up, or do they just leave it dead in the paddock? Yeah, no, they they like field butcher it and then okay. take it. They leave all the guts and everything on farm. Dogs normally get into it, make themselves sick. <laughs> and how do you feel about eating Betsy for a six months? Um, good. Got no issues with it. It's good food and keeps me fit and healthy. So does you look very fit and healthy thank you and um your mum and dad made you very practical i'm guessing because you grew everything you ate and you not only grew everything you ate you grew things that you had to see shot and butchered and turn up on your plate 
Yeah, so mum and dad are both off the land. Uh, dad was uh, quite a big farmer in the Waikato back in the day, it's his dad. Um, yeah. And he was diagnosed with Crohn's late life when he was about 40 or 50. Yeah. And he was going to be given chemotherapy and have his guts cut out. And mum was like, no way, did her own reading and changed his life with diet. And that's why we try and be sustainable. Wow. So if just Crohn's disease is a disease of the gut, is it? Yep. So it's a disease of the gut. Um, it can affect like your colon and stuff too. And dad was told the only way to fix it is chemotherapy or to have a bag, which is like where it bypasses the anus and it would have just ruined his life. And he said, no, going to do it myself. And what are the symptoms of Crohn's disease? Uh, so, well, it depends on how severe you are, but you'll have like guts ache, really bad mood swings, could be quite hangry, um, could pass blood out the anus, um, start getting anal fistulas, which is another whole. Okay, enough, enough. Yeah, enough. sorry, it's too much there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you sort of just sort of, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah. And so was he an older dad for you? Yeah, so he had me at 39. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he won't mind. He's about 62 now. Yeah. So he was like, he, you were like 11 or 12 and the oldest when he got this terrible illness. Yeah. And do we know what brings it on? Is it a genetic thing or environmental? Well, it depends what you believe. But uh, so he's, he reckons he had it all his life from about 30. He used to eat yeah. McDonald's every day as a young kid and just would have upset stomachs but didn't think much of it. Um, doctors will tell you it's hereditary or just, yeah, disease. But uh, Processed food was, inflames it, does it? Yeah. Dad believed it's all the processed food and diet that he had that brought it on. And... Yeah, and so your mum took care of him. Said no to hell with the chemotherapy. To hell with carrying a bag around instead of the normal way of going to the toilet. And you live on the land, growing your food and eating like organic, sustainable food or traditional food, including yep. fat and meat. Was it a particular diet that you followed? Like, does it have a name? Yeah, so mum found this book called The Maker's Diet. Yes. I don't fully know what it consists of, but pretty much. Exclude. I do know that book. Oh, you do? Yeah. Mm. So um, that's what he started on. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's based, as I recall it, correct me if I go wrong, it's um, based on Christian teachings, but yes. it's basically a traditional diet, like a Western A. Price diet that you eat like yep. I am. Western A. Price. Yeah. 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 Good for you. Good for him. And that's how what you grew up on. And it repaired him. Yep. So he's good to go now. No chemo, no bag. Obviously, isn't he has to watch eats, but he's Isn't cooking. that yeah. amazing? It's really cool to see. And you grew up then from a young age on the Makers or the Western A Price diet. Yeah. So obviously, we um, have a bit more lenience than Dad. We yes. dive here and there. But pretty much the basics that's what we grew up with yeah good for you well i'm a big i'm a big proponent of uh traditional diet and the western a price diet and the maker's diet and my kids the oldest of whom is 12 um they have lived on it 
um, their entire life. That said, as they got older, certainly their first five years, but as they get older, like you say, you have to make allowances because you don't want to get them get a thing about never having McDonald's or never having yeah. sweets or a birthday party. So, um, yeah. but we found those early years especially critical and even compared to their peers, they seem very health healthy and fit and strong, like in a way that you wouldn't have noticed 50 years ago, but you notice now when you compare them to other kids, there's something wrong in our food supply. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, what a one. And where did you go to school? So I went to Ashley school for primary, yes, yes. which just down the road. And I then went to St. Bede's College in Christchurch for nice. high school. Yeah. Did you enjoy high school? Yes. I didn't think I would. I wanted to go to Rangura where all my friends went. But I loved an all-male school and loved the rugby. And, yeah, it's good fun. And you're a Christian family? Yes. Are you a Catholic Christian family? No. Our granddad is Catholic. We're more just of the belief that, shouldn't be contained to one denomination. Mm. Follow Christ and what you believe and do good. And you're 22. Did you ever doubt the word of Christ growing up? Yes. Uh, I didn't – I was, wasn't forced on me. It's just something I did every day and always said I believed, but I hadn't found it myself yet. It was just going through the motion. And there was always mates going, oh, you're like, you're just delusional. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then it wasn't until I went to sort of late years in high school and just started asking some real questions and doing my own thinking. Um, yeah, that's when I really found my own faith. How wonderful. Yeah. You, you, you must find yourself standing apart from a lot of your peers it's very different and at times very challenging in what way burned a lot of relationships um just find me very different and we clash a lot and it sort of ended a few friendships or made some challenging because you can't discuss certain topics it must be hard too because you know 17 18 19 20 Typically, and it's expected almost nowadays, you go through this rite of passage of experimenting with alcohol, experimenting with drugs, girls, sex, and that, and your peers would find you judgmental about that. Yeah, like I say, I'm definitely not perfect. Uh, didn't lead a perfect life, but uh, no, who has? We understand. Yeah, that. yeah, but but. Uh, yeah. but but we know when we fall short. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. For them, for for people without faith or without principles or values, because I think you can you can obviously have principles and values without faith. Faith helps enormously though. Yeah. If you don't have principles or values and you notice this, it's just about what is a good time. Yeah, pretty in much. In the moment. Which is no wonder there's a lot of mental illness, right? When you when you realize what it is to live with a purpose yeah. and to live with 
a principle and value, and then you meet someone who's just there, oh, it was a good time, it's quite empty and perplexing, is it not? Yeah, I can see that in a lot of my friends sometimes, which is quite upsetting, to be honest, because I care about them, but yeah, they don't want to know, so they have to find it themselves. Have you got fellow friends and peers who are faith-based? Yes, not a lot, but I have some very close good friends that are completely on the same page about the government, current affairs and faith and all that sort of stuff. Good for you. But they're it, not. They're down south. Oh, uh, yeah. It's surprising to me that you went to St. Bede's, ostensibly a Catholic school, and didn't find your colleagues followers of Christ. Yeah, so they have all been baptised Catholics or just to get into the school, or maybe their parents were Catholic, but they hadn't found their own faith, um, so they were just attending to go to a good school, but not many of them believed, yeah. Listeners will be sick of me um, because I have become a Christian this year. And because of because of listeners and the help of a man called Steve Oliver, who's guided me, and people's prayers, and I can't tell you how much, I'm not preachy, but I can't tell you how much it's enriched my life. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Like it's just, it is so wonderful. Yeah, well, good on you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, well, good on you because, um, and, um, like Jesus taught, it's never too late. Never too late. Now, you went to, uh, St. Bede's. You wanted to get into vet school. Thank goodness that you didn't. Was that because of your marks or because you're, what do you, why didn't you get into vet school? Because you look smart and look like you'd be a good vet. Yeah. So I missed out. Um, by one percent on my grades. No. Yeah, one percent. I don't mean to be uh, questioning, but is it any of that sort of quota based? Uh, I don't understand quota based. Sorry. Does it help if you were Maori? Yes. So I have a. So I'm an RA here. So I have a couple first years that I look after that were in the pre-vet with me that went through the Māori Pacifica selection, got lower than the required GPA, which is the required mark, and still got let through, which is frustrating when you miss out by 1%. It's racist, right? Yep. Um, you're the first person I've met directly affected by what I call quotas or affirmative action or a race-based selection criteria. Um, you had made your mind up to be a vet and you were beaten because of your skin colour. Yeah, obviously I could have tried harder and got in, but it's uh, definitely very annoying when people get worse marks than you and take up a spot that you could have had just because you can't claim mouldy heritage. I can't believe that you're so relaxed about it. I would be incandescent angry. 
Well, I've had my angry and upset phase and didn't get me anywhere. Maybe no, feel worse. So got to just. And I keep guess, going. I guess, in a way, you've grown up at twenty-two with this is the way the world works. Yeah, that's the thing. Like I'm born in this modern day era, so I don't really know any difference. I've just heard how it used to be, but still very frustrating. Yeah. Because um nothing like that existed. Yeah, well my, my mum it and she didn't have any of that in her day and she went through selection. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just I remember reading about it happening in the United States. And I thought this is so nutty. And yep. I guess this was in the 80s and early 90s. And then they brought it in for, I remember, medical school. And mm. I imagine now it's comprehensive. And then in this, it was always about, oh, it's just to get in. They sit the same exams in the US now. They actually have different pass rates because um, they were leading affirmative action students in who then couldn't pass and so they had to set up different criteria so it didn't look bad and to, thomas soul a black a black academic and author who's 93 or 94 now still writing uh, he explained that when he was teaching as a professor in the 60s that because there's so many universities and they're so hier hierarchical Black students were getting into like Harvard, who would otherwise on their marks got into a local state university and actually come out with a very good degree. And in his day, they were getting into Harvard and failing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's just awful, 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 awful. And it just sets. I mean, ah, oh, I just, I don't have words. Let's move on from that. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know I don't have words for it because it's That's so. It's frustrating, yeah. But yeah. So you then thought, well, okay, I'll do agriculture. And by the way, I think that's a better choice. And you you go off to university at Massey. And I know the story a little bit. What happened then? Um, What do you mean? What happened well, then? Well, COVID, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is my first year, but I attended in 2021. Uh, so in 2021, I was studying a different degree, Bachelor of Information Sciences. Mm -hmm. But I suffered a severe head knock and had to leave university early at the end of semester one. And then I was planning on returning next year, but then came in the mandates and I was told if I couldn't supply a vaccine um certificate in time that i would be withdrawn and not able to attend university and i didn't take it so i was withdrawn and unable to attend till now so you missed a year because of a head injury you missed a year because you refused the jab yeah why did you refuse the jab um mum did a lot of research and said i love your voice yeah, I love my mum too. She's a pretty incredible lady. Uh, she said, don't make any drastic decisions. Uh, just let me have a look first and then we'll just wait. And she uh, she's very medically trained from vet, obviously, and understood the spike protein in the mRNA. 
inside the vaccine and said, there's no way I'll let any of my boys have that, that you dare oh, take God, it. what a great mum. Yeah. What so, a great mum. Not putting that anywhere near me. Yeah. So you was it a hard decision to take, not to take the jab, or you were comfortable yep. with it? Well, I was comfortable because I was comfortable with my health, but uh, it was still tough. Uh, obviously, as a young guy, you just want to go out, socialise, go to pubs, festivals, see your mates. I lost all of that. My brother couldn't sit his licence. He couldn't go to a spearfishing nationals he'd been picked for. Um, my friends had uninvited me from events, told me I wasn't allowed to come around to their house without the vaccine as they felt unsafe. Uh, but if you took the vaccine, I thought it makes you safe. Go figure. Um, and yeah, I went into Subway one day. I joined a control group um, and I showed that card and they reported me to the police. I got letters in the mailbox from the police. And yeah, like I missed out on a lot of stuff and I couldn't do certain jobs. So I had to work on a dairy farm for 18 months. Um, there was people wearing masks on a dairy farm. No. It's just ridiculous. You've had a – you are in the topsy-turvy world, unvaxxed Christian, 22 years old. Pretty weird, yeah. Like, you're the ultimate radical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um. You're confident in yourself, though. Didn't used to be, but very confident over the last few years. Yeah. Where Sticks. does that come from? Um, my father. I aspire to be like him a lot. He uh, he taught me how to control your mind. Um, got to be mentally strong, and always back yourself. And I just yeah, I was like, that's a strong man, and he's it's not a long left. Not a lot left these days, so yeah. Yes, we're not. He, do you think he would be labelled uh, a toxic masculinity? Yes, most definitely, and so would I at points. Yeah, um, I love what they call toxic masculinity because I regard it as chivalry. Yes, that's what I was taught: the art of manliness. Yeah. And it was this idea that all I wanted to do was hack a dragon to death or yeah. save a damsel from a bad guy and even lay down my life for that. That's how I was brought up. And you had to be strong and tough to protect the weak and vulnerable. And it wasn't that women or girls were considered weak and vulnerable, but they were on a pedestal. Yeah. You put them on a pedestal and they were to be respected, they were to be loved, and they were to be protected at all costs. Yeah, I'm of the same belief. Yeah. Mm. And um, when I was growing up, no one thought any different. So we struggled to protect yeah. women because they were protected, it seemed to me. And nowadays... It's a strange thing that women are so disrespected by young men. Yeah, it's really sad to see. My um, God. Makes my blood more. 
sometimes, yeah. Yeah, they're commodified, objectified. And it's not just that they're commodified and objectified in magazines or on billboards, but they're objectified and commodified in personal interaction. Yeah. And it's hateful where what was such a significant and positive thing, it seemed, feminism, has ended up in terms of where women are now positioned and treated. Yeah, it's gone one step too far, I think. Yeah. Yes. Um, tell me about university life for you. So it's very different to when I came in 2021. I quite enjoyed my first year. Um, like, obviously it wasn't perfect, but there's a lot more cool people, a lot more interesting people and less rules and wokeism, if you will. Yeah. And yeah, this year, I, if I didn't have to study at university to get my degree, I wouldn't be here. Don't enjoy it anymore. So because? I'm in RA, which is a residential assistant. You don't know what that is. So I live in a hostel and I look after the first years. Oh, good. Yes. 50 of them in my hall. Yes. Um, so that's a job I get paid to do, but it's uh, not what I thought at all. Um, Tell me, are you the only RA for those 50 or one of several? Uh, there's two per hall. So I've got one okay. other in my hall. Um, so, yeah, we come to university a month early and undergo training. Um, and that training was um, a lot of the rainbow community. We had specialists come in, teach us about rainbow community, how to deal with it. Um, the whole time I just felt pushed that, you know, straight white masculinity is wrong, that you should be more accepting and more like, yeah, I don't know the word, but so let's say yeah. this. Let's take take you back before your training. Imagine you're an RA, and a gay student turns up. How would you have treated him? Totally fine, like a normal human. I have gay friends too, but it wouldn't have been pushed on me and forced, and that's how it feels now. And um, it's like that's the whole like university like that's the norm like a normal person is like the gay or rainbow community and we've got to attend like compulsory counseling meetings i'm mentally sound i'm fine and when i go there i feel like they're trying to make an issue out of nothing make you have a mental issue because then they get paid to do what they do but i have nothing wrong i don't enjoy going at all oh they're counseling you yep they send the RAs to compulsory counselling meetings. So you turn up and you're seeing a counsellor. Are you on your own? There's, they send you in groups. So there's about four or five per group that go. And what do you talk about? Um, well, they go around the circle, talk about problems you've had, the questions. <laughs> very you're a man. You don't yeah, talk I'm a about your problems. I don't have issues. <laughs> I'm fine. My it's God. <laughs> We hide our hide our issues. We deal with them. Oh my yeah. goodness! So, what do guys talk about? Are you allowed to tell me, or is it in confidence? Uh, I can tell you, but I can't get like into too many details, obviously. Yeah. But um, so, 
there's a few rainbow members on the team that yeah. love this any excuse to talk about like how average their life is how they excluded everything not true but they just love to make issues the so counselor, they love to be a victim yeah they victims that's it and then the counselor will ask very probing questions try back you into being a victim and sometimes i don't quite catch on and they nearly get there but i always bite back like no nah, i'm fine leave me alone well they will have you pegged as yep. a very unhealthy guy right yeah because so they you're think I'm the one that is yeah 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 oh and this is how often uh so you have to do like five a year so we've got one more to go it would be hell yeah i can't stand it i had a guy come to see me when i was an mp and his wife left him and his lawyer her lawyer told him to say that she was a you know beat her up and did all the stuff right and so he got kicked out of the house early on with the police and couldn't see his kids yeah and then they told him that the best thing that he could do <laughs> was to go along to a course on anti-violence with a counselor right and he said i'm sitting in this damn room and he says there's prison thugs there's violent criminal offenders and they're all sitting there and they're all saying how oh yes they were violent and yes they did rape and kill but they're okay now and he said it would get to me and i'd just say look i'm not even supposed to be here i'm just wanting <laughs> to see my kids there's nothing wrong with me yeah. and the counselor kept going on that clearly he had issues and the more he said that he didn't have issues the more she said that he did and he said the only time i've ever felt violent in my life was in this group because yeah. they kept going on how i was not opening up to my violence and he failed the course while all these ex-cons sailed through because they knew what to say Jeez. and yeah. it was like this um kafkaesque sort of um trial that they put you through mm -hmm. tell me about the course you had as an ra for the month so yeah we did a training course at the start uh, i've got a couple of notes i'll just bring it up uh oh yep so that's another thing before even attending the university even getting here this first year i was asked to supply my pronouns um i said i don't do pronouns that's <laughs> oh, i'm jack marshall lee i don't have pronouns i'm a male they, the, the, the clue is in the name yeah like that's my name put that on my door thank you not my pronouns i don't have any uh instantly got blacklisted they thought you know like oh this guy's whack and they put me down as a woman hater and stuff um um and we got um, we got training on sexual and mental health dealing with the rainbow community what is sexual health do you know um 
Well, supposedly I should know after being trained on it, but I left it feeling very confused and that you should question your gender and there's multiple and I, yeah. Not oh, so sexual health is gender ideology. It's not how to avoid getting syphilis well, or something. Apparently these days it is. I thought it was, that's what sexual health should be, but now it's gender focused. Wow, because sexual health, when they went to university, was how to avoid sexually transmitted diseases, which yep. is to not have sex. And um, the other thing was to avoid pregnancy. And now sexual health is being open to the possibility that you're on a gender spectrum. Yeah. Obviously, I don't believe in that at all. But, uh, no. um, yeah. That's there was no mention of how to avoid pregnancy or STIs. It was all gender focused. How interesting. Yeah. And the people that were presenting this were they a little odd? Yes. Uh, some I'm not going to lie. Don't mean to offend anyone. I couldn't tell what they were, and that's quite concerning sometimes. I had these people turn up to my children's inside out. Turned up to my daughter's primary school and without parents knowledge had two hours of compulsory school time with my daughter teaching them i guess sexual health but it was gender ideology yeah mm -hmm. and my daughter couldn't tell what they were she yeah. described she described them to me at 11 as trans and lesbos which um, I don't think she passed the course. Yeah, and make an RA either. But this is shocking. Yeah, and you had must have if it was a month, you must have had hours of this stuff every day, Monday to Friday, nine to three. Did my head in, nearly drove me mad. What else did you cover? Um, so I, I've everything I've put in here is what we covered. We just like did lots of it. Like it's just you can't do you can't do an hour on that stuff. Oh, we did days on that. It was just ridiculous. And no, no, was, tell me you can't do days on that. You can't do days on this. It is not. What could you say after do. pronouns? There are seventy-two plus genders. Here's the list. A lot of it was like how to apply it to your um, residents once they arrive. So it was learning and then going through scenarios like Johnny turns up and he's not sure he's a male. What do you do? <laughs> and what do you do? Well, I just say, mate, you're a male. But, uh, you know, that's not yeah. what you're to say. Uh, you go, um, we can refer you to a counsellor. It's okay to feel unsure, Johnny. There's ways to deal with this. We can help you figure out what you want to be. There's no straight answer. You can be confused as you like. Because I imagine to suggest that you're a male is dangerously it's potentially offensive. illegal because it's yeah. well, offensive, but also that gay conversion bill act legislation, right? Well, we're told we're not allowed to say anything like that. Yeah. Have you had anyone turn up confused? Oh multiple um i've got a no little story for you if you want no have you had people turn up to university not knowing whether they're a boy or a girl yes and i've not been allowed to deal with them because i'm like the only straight male on the team and they know i just cut straight through it 
So I've turned up to university. I'm, what, 18? And I go to my advisor and I say, you know, mate, I can't conceive of this. I think I could be a girl. Yep. And that happens. That happens, unfortunately. And the training then is to do what? Well, to not, first of all, not give them a straight answer, just understand, listen, and then refer to someone more experienced, which is like our counsellors or our boss. And then I don't know what happens from there. They handle it. You said you had a case that you wanted to share or some incident you wanted There's to share. There's not quite specific Johnny no. turning up at all, but it's quite along the lines of that. So during that training that month, we hosted the Wellington RA team to train with us as well for a week. And what I thought was a female, still unsure to this day, asked me where the toilets were. And I said, the female toilets are that way, other toilets over there. And she instantly bit down my throat, like, how dare you assume my gender? Who do you think you are? Don't you dare talk to me like that again? And stormed off. And to this day, I'm still unsure what she is. Clearly a girl to me, but apparently not. So they are looking to take offence. They want to be a victim, and they want to not tell you what they are. They want you to just not assume. and. Not, yeah, they just want and to And this a was a fellow student. She was a student at university. This was a, yes, this is an RA, so they'd be like a second-year student at Wellington University. Okay. So if someone of indeterminate sex approaches me at university and says, where are the toilets, what's the correct answer? You'd say toilets are this way, and you don't say which ones are in which direction. You let them figure out which one they want to go to. But let's say the male ones are to my left. Yeah. And the female ones are to my right. I can't say the toilets are this way and point both directions, can I? You just have to go toilets are that way be very good <laughs> and I can figure it out because you've waved your arms around in a 360 degree fashion yeah <laughs> but you you gave this fellow student the two options that normally exist for toilets exactly clear directions so they don't get lost and then they could figure out which one they want to be but and you didn't assume that she was one or the other I said first the girl ones are that way because that's what I thought but then Boys are also that way, you know. She can make her own decision, but she wouldn't let me finish the sentence and snap me up straight away. i got to say, Jack, you do look a bit Christian conservative. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got that muscularity, you've got that um, sharp jaw, you've got the short haircut, yeah. You're very white, and yeah. I think you would be someone they could safely assume 
I can wind this person up and be offended and take it all away to the vice chancellor and the human rights commission and onto the UN. Yes, and they can definitely wind me right up. Yep. Oh. What do they think of you at the university? So um, my boss, from my reference, thought I hated women and blacklisted me pretty much. So when I got here... Um, How do you mean from your reference? So you have to give a reference for the job. And I gave my boss from the dairy farm. You said, yeah, Jack's like a hard worker. doesn't take nonsense, da-da-da. Didn't work well under his female boss, but that was because she didn't know how to farm, not because she's a female. And then instantly she takes that, oh, Jack hates women. Okay. So we have to do rounds on drinking night, like duty. It's part of the job. And my boss shadowed me on my shift, and that has never happened in history. So and what is this? Um, what night is it drinking night? The drinking nights are Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 7 to 10 p.m. What's a and drinking night? You could go drinking. Yeah, so you can't drink on campus outside of those nights. You can drink okay. on campus at those times. Yeah. And so the RAs have to, about four RAs per night, have to split up and do rounds just to make sure no one's dead. Or, you know, I don't even fully believe we should do rounds. We should let them just have fun, but we baby yeah. them. And so they're at the university bar? Uh, no, just we have like communal halls or areas where they can just bring alcohol and drink okay play music and you wander around there checking that no one's overindulged or vomited and passed out or being assaulted yep that's it and for that you needed to be shadowed yeah i was the only one it's never happened in history before and i was the only one that night that was shadowed and the whole night and i wasn't told why i was just told don't want, don't question it. But I have a friend who's slightly higher up in the chain than me, and she gives me a bit of inside information, which is very lucky. And what was the goss? Uh, she said, well, she thought you're a woman hater. She thought you might just go ballistic on duty. She wasn't sure how you'd handle situations. You thought you just might blow up and not be safe around first years. Um so, yeah, I was quite shocked to hear that. It must be it must be disturbing. I can't imagine it to be a good person working hard to be a better person, yeah, and to have a label attached to you that sort of sees you as a person that needs to be watched as what? Potentially aggressive? Yeah. And I don't want to blow my own trumpet here, but I'm probably the most attractive one on the team, so I get a lot of attention from the first-year females especially. Oh, I can imagine that. So when they come up, just being cheerful, happy, you want to have a yarn, which is totally fine, I'd yarn back, but nothing more than that. I instantly get split up, told to head that direction, not to speak to any females for the rest of the night. Do you think these young women, gosh, I don't know how to phrase that, they're not looking for an androgynous male, they're looking for a real male? 
yeah, that's what I think. And, you know, just, yeah. Because that's biology, right? That's history. That's how attraction works, you know? That's Bible. That's like, you know, um, of the people at university in those first years, are there many, do you know, would you guess, hypothesize, how many are LGBT plus? So there's a dining hall where we all go and have dinner. Um, and I'd say of the sort of 100 that I see at a time in there, good 40%, I'm very confused at what they are, or there's like coloured hair or clearly LGB, you know, not a straight male, not a straight female, just... Blah. 40%. Yeah, I'd say about 40%. And how do the pronouns work in practice? So. I've been told off multiple times because we have, so I'll give another example. We have one male on the team who his pronouns are he, they, um, and he doesn't like to be called him because he's not sure if he's a boy. And I didn't know this, so I always just go, g'day, mate, or refer to him as a bloke, call like him, he, when I'm referring to him in other contexts. And all the other members tell me off that, you can't refer to him like that. He doesn't feel comfortable, but he's never had the balls to come up to me and tell me otherwise. So until he does, he's a bloke. I'll refer to him as a bloke. So it's interesting. You can be a he, they. So for he, they. And like, I don't understand how that works. Apparently, Because I would have thought you'd be a feeling. he, a he, yeah. him, or them, they. I read. I was reading the stuff newspaper, and they were doing this they them business on an article, and I couldn't make head nor tail what they were talking about because the they and them was so confusing that you didn't know who was being referred to. It was utterly confusing. So he is the only one with an odd pronoun that you deal with on my RA team, but there's lots of. Uh, residents that have very different pronouns that I just don't even begin to fathom or refer to them as their pronouns. I just let it blow in my head and try not to get too upset. Um, the foot when you say that forty percent are into uh, what's the phrase non-binary? Yeah, my daughter at twelve thinks there's twenty percent in her year that are non-binary. Mm-hmm. So they recruit a bit more, get to university, a bit more out there, university, there's 40%. Well, at university, our bosses told us this is a time when people can experiment and find themselves for who they fully are. So I think that sort of influence allows a lot greater percentage to be unsure. Yeah. Um, and being from a farm, being a person who respects the truth and being a Christian, this is against your deepest understanding of the world and of how to live me it goes against everything i believe and it's wrong and i'm told to just 
that I'm wrong and stop being so stuck up and arrogant and get on with it. Do the other students, do you think, particularly the other RAs, do they just think it's bullshit and go along with it or do they believe it? 80% believe it. The wow. other 15% are indifferent, like doesn't affect me, can't really see anything negative with it, we'll just be accepting. And then I'm like the 5% that is radical and thinks it's seriously wrong. Do you think you have a future as an RA? No, I've not been invited back. They've already done um, applications for the next year and they've invited who they want back from this year's team. I've not received one. I'm not welcome back. So that affects you financially? Yes, if I wanted to save money again and do this job, I now can't. Are you going to continue with your studies nonetheless? I will continue with studies next year, yes. You're the 5%. Yeah. That's like, how many years back do you think you'd need to go to be the 95%? More than two. Um, oh, not that, I, even that. Like 10 years, right? You'd definitely be in the 95%. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely, yeah. That's how quick and radical it's been, isn't it? It's been yeah. a complete clean sweep. So, like, in 2021, my first year, I'd say, like, 80 90% of my mates were like me, you know, just, oh, let's have fun, we're a bloke, let's go out, rah, rah, rah. And now it's completely changed in two years. Have you a girlfriend? I do, yes. If she of similar views to you? Not 100%, but she's very open to it, and she does have similar views, yes, and she's very interested in it, which is very cool. Is dating at university, I mean, it's good to have a girlfriend, so you're on the same wavelength, but when I went to university, dating was free and easy and fluid. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. you got people would go through lots of boyfriends, lots of girlfriends potentially, and a lot of sexual experimentation. When I went to university, not me, of course, but that must be a fraught business with consent and being careful about allegations made is that do people feel that i can't confidently answer that i feel like there's definitely a lot more nervousness and pressure around i know a couple first years that have had allegations against them that haven't been proven either way but my belief is that it's completely false and it's a real shame to see that that this has changed their life and they have to have these allegations made about them yeah, so you're quite lucky to have a steady girlfriend because it, hopefully that overcomes that. Yeah. Um, what do you see when you look around the campus, the professors, your bosses? What do you see in the next five years happening? 
I see, I won't be here to experience that because I would go crazy. Um, but I see crash, like the university's already dying. Like they've had to do big cuts, cut budgets, change things a lot. Um, I look around campus and I feel lost. I don't see f- like a lot of healthy people. I see a lot of sad people. I see a lot of weird people. I don't see lots of young people together having fun. And I've experienced, mum and dad have told me how uni was in their day. And it's nothing like that. I think it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. I think university will change drastically in the next five years. I um, have observed that people that choose a, what I'd call a heterodox lifestyle, appear oftentimes. Clearly, there are true lesbians and true homosexuals, and clearly there are true transvestites. Yeah, there are, and I have friends that are. Yeah, yeah, and um, but I think the blow up of it has led to a joylessness in terms of living. Yeah. And I mean, for me, the example was Carrie Allen. You may not know of her. No. But she she was a minister in this government who had to resign. And she was always having multiple lesbian partners and having surrogate children. And it was always written up in the magazines as oh how wonderful it is, and she's a lesbian, and there are two mums, and how wonderful and all it is. But then next thing is they're coming out and they're depressed and they're mentally ill and they're on medication. And you sort of think, yeah, well, I can imagine that mm-hmm. because it's not it's not joyful. It's not exciting. It's not – they seem to be doing it in a performative way, if you know what I mean. I mean, in the old days, to me – for you two years ago, homosexuals were genuine. Yeah, they were. You know, lesbians were genuinely lesbians, and it was they could have a joyful life. But these ones now, it seems to me like I've chosen this to be cool or something, and it just seems unhappy. And then on top of that, Jack, I'm guessing that there can't be a lot of fun on campus because you have to be so very careful Yeah, what you say and do. Yeah, definitely. Do you find yourself having to engage your brain before you open your mouth to check that you're not saying sending someone to the wrong toilet? Yes, way too much now than I think I should ever have to. Because um, you can't crack a joke. There'd be no jokes being cracked, right? No. Depends what crowd you're around. There's still some I've still got mates that yeah, we joke about it. It's good fun. But more often than not, the social setting I'm in, I'll say what I want to say. And of course, if you're a lefty and you're in on it, the mores today may not be the mores tomorrow. And you have to be constantly checking that you're in well, you know, you're not saying something forbidden. Or doing yeah. something that's considered offensive—it's—it's it's like it must be extremely hard 
Yeah. So I just, I find it very frustrating at university because I feel like I can't have the conversations I want to have, speak my mind all the time. There are still certain people I can do that with, but when I go home, it's refreshing. Say what I want. I so you just, couldn't be sitting in a group or in a class and put your hand up and say, look, I think this transgenderism has gone way over the edge. And um, the very idea that uh, a, a man can be a woman and have all the privileges of a woman, including access to a woman's toilet and women's sports, I think that is wrong for these reasons. And you couldn't put your hand up and say that. No, I'd be told off if I did that in my job. I would be then probably sent in for meetings with my boss and to more counselling, and I could not do that. So I don't want to say what I want to say. This is like something out of uh, a Chinese re-education system. Yeah. It feels like a dictatorship, and they're all about being accepting and welcoming, but they're very much... You can be accepting and welcoming how we decide. And if you speak your mind, it's not okay. Another thing you notice is there's not a argument underpinning it. It's just a threat of yep. underpinning it. Like, I'll cost you your job. We're supposed to be a democracy. It's supposed to be free speech. And the university, I feel like that's... The peak of it where we're young minds we should be taught to challenge things and do your own research don't believe everything you're told but there's not a platform to do that tell me jack do your mum and dad worry about you um about sure this? If, yeah i'm not sure if mum worries about me she's very good at like just not showing her emotion and supporting me uh dad's always worried about me yeah because I worry about my kids because I'm bringing them up like you were brought up. Yeah. And I wonder if I'm bringing them up to live a true life and a happy life and a joyful life and to have all the pleasure of, you know, marriage and children and work and producing all the wonderful things. And I tell them, that for them, school is often a toxic place where they're getting taught toxic ideas and they've got to be aware of that. Yeah. And that there's a toxicity out there. And I worry that they're always going to be on the edge. Like, you can't do any other way because you've got to live true, right? You've got to bring your kids up with the truth. And so I never hesitate. It's like you, I never hesitate. Yeah. But I think, oh my goodness. Um, like, none of my children want to go to university. Yeah, none of my brothers want to go. And so your goal is get your degree and get out. Yeah, I don't enjoy my time here anymore. It's very much a means of necessity. And then what do you want to do, Jack? I've always been internally frustrated with what I want to do. I've not really found it, but oh, I... Well, join the club. I'm still looking, but I must admit... <laughs> I'm enjoying yep. being a RCR host. Yeah, well, yes, that's I know. Cool. I know what you mean. Uh, yep. But don't worry, because I'm now sixty-six. I think I'm sixty-seven this year, and I'm still searching for what I want to be. 
Yeah, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was never clear. It's never been, oh, this is my thing. And look, I've enjoyed every job I've done, but it's not like this is me. I did, I have to say, I walked into Parliament and I thought, oh, wow, this is where I'm meant to be. I just, <laughs> you know, I loved that. And I loved being a university lecturer and I loved working in business. I loved all my jobs. I loved working on the North Sea oil rigs. I loved driving trucks. I loved it all. But it's not like oh. I had this revelation this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be this for 40 years. And I don't know. I've just never, I'm a bit of a gypsy too, where I live, I move. Um, yeah. So don't feel bad about that. It's a bit tough when you say to kids at 15, what are you going to be? And you think, I don't know. That's been me. And I'm still that way. And I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm very happy in that. Yeah. Some people are lucky like mum since the age of eight knew she wanted to be a vet, did it straight away. My brother knew he wanted to be a diver and he's just gone and done it. But my father and I just no idea and just keep going. Keep going. And you know what? There's a path. Yeah. So we're There's the path. a wonderful path. And you'll pick your way along it. And for some people, it's straight. And that's wonderful. And for other people, there are a lot of detours yeah. and surprises. And I can't imagine living a straight path. No, like I know what general direction I want to go and uh, following what I'm doing, but I don't have you want to like, be a farmer. Yeah, that's why I would not mind being a farmer. I've done a lot of dairy farming to see if I'd enjoy it. And I love working with animals, I love working on the land. So, if I could own a farm, I'd snap that up. Wouldn't that be something? Well, you will, yeah, you will. You set that as your goal, and you will. Yep. And the thing is. That is the greatest thing on earth. And, of course, I think that's why not only do they have to be down on men and they have to be down on women, and when I say they, I mean those people amongst us who want to boss the rest of us around and tell us what to do, they want to keep the population weak so they introduce things like welfare, yeah. they introduce things like free this and free that and we all doll it out. They have to get rid of the family because the family's strong. Yeah, as soon as you break a family, there's no yeah. yeah. You gotta you gotta do away with religion because religion is stronger than a government. And then you have to break the farmers and yeah. small business. You have to break them. Because then we just become aut autonomous individuals without anything to fall back on and with no purpose or faith. We just want to be happy. And we look to government to supply it. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what reading you've done, but are you talking about the top 1%, like the elite of the elite? Like, I don't know. Don't I know. sometimes I sometimes think of it as the top 1%, but I think that there are just, there are people amongst us, like I'm a libertarian and I just want to have live my life and have people live their life. And that would be my aspiration. But I noticed that, that when I was in politics and parliament, there were people that just wanted to tell everyone else what to do. Yeah. And they'd latch on every cause like climate change or COVID. Mm -hmm. And they didn't care less about the science. They didn't care less about whether it was a crisis or not. They just saw it as another opportunity to grab so that control. Yeah. 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 And I think that's a lot of people and a lot of rich people when they get rich, 
Yeah. I've noticed a lot of very rich people, once I've made that money, they then hanker for power because it's what they haven't got. Yes. And um, so I think it's attractive to a lot of people. And, of course, they're the people that are attracted into politics and into the bureaucracy. Yeah. And um, the people that people. want to live a life are attracted into trades, uh, into farming. And, of course, if you're working as a producer in business or farming, you can't help but be humble. Yeah. Because yeah. Constant, constantly you're reminded of what you don't know. Yep. And constantly you're reminded of what can go wrong. And when things go right, you're very conscious of your good fortune, not yeah. just your ability. Yeah. Whereas if you're a bureaucrat or a politician, you are rewarded for being arrogant. Yeah. And there's no need for any humility because you're the boss of the boss. Yeah, you don't answer to anyone except no. so. Yeah. And they can't they never need except no politician's ever been wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Marshall Lee. Oh my goodness. You are truly wonderful to come on our show. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rallycheck.radio. Your mum and dad should be extremely proud of you. I know I would be if you were my son because you're such a fine man. Not only are you, are you intelligent and with a deep understanding of the world around you, you're extremely brave. Thank you. Because you stick with your principles and your values. And I have to say, when you're 22, that must be extremely tough, which just means that you're brave and strong it's been a pleasure to have you on jack likewise thanks for having me on rodney it's refreshing to talk to someone like you oh well there you go jack marshall lee doesn't he make your doesn't he seem to tingle down your spine because that's our future right there and this is going to be the people in the future that will lead us out of our cultural morass and our purposelessness and our lack of direction. And he might lead us out because of his farming ability, because of his business nous, because of his religious insight, because of his political achievements. But you know that this is the future of our renaissance. So we're very lucky to have Jack on. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Please send me a text. 2057. Email me at inbox at radio. I'd love to know what you make of Jack and what you make of university life. It was a great insight. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Oh, it's my best part of the show. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and I'm getting my mailbag out. Oh, it's like Christmas to me. i got to tell you, Steph, thanks, Rodney, for being a progressive thinker. Oh, is that a good thing? I don't know. I always thought of progressive thinkers are being lefties. Uh, I'm very concerned about the wasted vote commentary being pushed. I watched Winston holding a meeting when it was a question time, a woman who had lost a family member. Oh, I'm so sorry. Due to the vaccine asked, 
if all the tragic outcomes from this will be addressed. Well, his body language changed into sheepishness, looking down and mumbled something about having an independent inquiry. He was obviously very uncomfortable. I worry that there's a push for the freedom community to vote for this man. I feel they're walking into the lion's mouth. I think it's the lion's den. Uh, thanks for listening. Yeah, i got to say, I... Struggle to trust Mr. Peters. Rosa said, thanks, Rodney. First time I've ever heard the government prayer and hated the fact Trevor just wiped it out without any discussion to the House of Representatives. Who are they representing? Exactly. Oh, my goodness, Rodney. You need a much deeper dive into the removal of the prayer in Parliament. It made a mere mortal able to be elevated to godlike status. Yes, indeed. We lost our moral compass. Yes, indeed. Power was subsumed. Yes, indeed. Let's get a pastor, father, preacher, moral Christian speaker in it to discuss this, please. What a great idea. I wonder if Bob McCroskey's across it. We'll find out. Uh, my electorate vote is going to New Zealand. Great conversation with Alfred. Thanks, Rodney. Dear Rodney, just listening to your 5th of October show, Alfred Naru interview was wonderful. A principled and intelligent man. Is he what? It was a wonderful interview. Love the point he made about parliamentary prayer change. Me too. I was really troubled about that when it happened. Sue Gray interview was also excellent. Yes, indeed. I'm so appreciative of Sue and all the legal cases she battled and the repository of knowledge she possesses as a result. Wins and losses. I've decided today to vote with my conscience and let go, as Alfred said. I was working myself into a state of despair before now, trying to decide which 5% party I don't agree with was the least painful to vote for. Now I feel at peace. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you. Glenn said, ask Mrs. Gray why Brian Tamaki had jab centers in the church's car park. Believe Sue has sold us out if she's connected to him. Sorry. Well, we did discover that with uh, Ali Cook. And Ali Cook explained that they were just testing stations, not jab centers, according to Ali Cook. And she'd know. She's standing for the party too. Jackie said, hi, Rodney. I was just catching your interview with Sue Gray partway through. Love you. Love your show. Love Sue Gray. Thank you very much for keeping on speaking out with these wonderful people. We need it. We need to keep feeling connected and strong. Bless you. Thank you. Hi, Rodney. I just listened to your interview with Sue Gray. I have so much respect for Sue. Me too. Like you, Rodney, I have a lot of respect for all of the political parties who are standing up for our rights and freedoms. I do, however, get criticized for standing up for parties or party leaders that others don't agree with. I regularly have to remind people we're all on the same side. Let's keep the criticism for those currently in Parliament who didn't stand up for us. Love to you, and I love RCR. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm like that. It's all the ones in Parliament that um, I'm angry with. Sandra said, hey, Rodney, I'm in a band called Crooked Finger, and our new song I wrote for Scott Watson is due out on the 21st of October. It's called Random Sale. If you're interested in a copy of it before it goes live, I'd be happy to send an MP3, and you're welcome to play it. The song is five minutes and 20. I feel very strongly that Scott is innocent and wrongly convicted, and follow the Facebook page, Free Scott Watson. Kind regards. I agree with you, Sandra. If the little parties are so much for the same freedom, why are they not talking to each other to come together and provide a solid front of togetherness? I wonder. Well... I know from experience it's hard. John said, Hi, Rodney. Everyone should read Break Your Chains by Makia Freeman, exposing the grand conspiracy and presenting the way out. Available from Amazon as an ebook for about $15. It's well worth the reading. Tells us uh, the US starting all the wars since World War II. 
right up to date with the Biden administration and all the evil stuff that's going on in the world right now. Kind regards. Oh, never heard of that book, but there you go, listeners. Hi, what are your thoughts on the latest from Chippy? You don't need an IB, but can vote. Does this not lead to fraudulent voting? Well, it's got to be checked. I don't know how it's working these days. Tell Rodney Heidi is fantastic. Oh, I can't read that. I have to practice humility. Love him and his take on all this government deception and criminality. Keep it up. Yeehaw. Nice. Rodney. Oh, this is about Mr. Hipkins getting laid low with the COVID in my, well, they call it a rant. We like to call it a soliloquy. It sounds more elevated. About uh, Mr. Hipkins getting the COVID, which was karma. Rodney, another possibility is that Hipkins never actually had the vaccine, a Ceylon solution, maybe. He lies easily. Oh, could be true. Billy says, hello, Rodney. I'm with you, sweet justice. I wonder if he's been vexed. It would be a riot if he hadn't been, though the media wouldn't spill the beans. Not that we know he's telling the truth and not just staying home hoping folks will push him up in his absence. Yeah, he's having a spell. Raymond said, hi, Rodney. I loved your recent show with Ali Cook and Sue Gray and your one with Trevor Loudon. Also heard you say you're a recent Christian. That's true. So glad to hear that. would be great to hear more of your Christian story. Oh, I wonder, I worry that listeners are getting sick of it. I have been a Christian for 30 years, but have struggled so much. But I also had to dig deeper because of that. I hope that one day I could tell you a little of my journey so far. I would like that. Thank you for your show and Paul and Marie. You're my favorite three. And when I became a Christian, I had such a hunger and a thirst for books. I love books. I hope I can share with you some of my favorite wide-ranging Christian books. Thanks. Michael said, I love your interviews. Actually, I love RCR as well. I realize I'm not alone in what I see is happening. It's really hard to talk to people because they just don't want to know about some of the dreadful issues, such as activist LGBT. That's why I love Lorraine Moller and the very intelligent, determined and brave woman you interview. In your latest interview with Lorraine, you still seem confused as to where the LGBT thing comes from. So here are some interviews I found helpful. Uh, so there's an interview there, Parental Trauma in a World of Gender Insanity by Miriam Crossman, doctor. The UK Experiment under the auspices of the NHC, BBC journalist, had gender clinics failed gay kids. Uh, now that you are a follower of Jesus, you'll get this, the spirit of LGBT, ancient gods and the rainbow. And ah, Jonathan Kane, I read his book after I interviewed, oh my goodness, his name escapes me, it'll come to me, uh, Ashley Church. Uh, Jonathan Kane on the dark side of LGB and Jonathan Kane on the return of the gods. When I watched this, I had several aha moments, the best 30-minute explanation of Marxism I'd ever heard is another one. And as you mentioned, the parents clapped the brave boy who came out as trans. It's crowd think. They also did that when Hitler spoke because they were all caught up in the moment and no one dared be different. God bless you and yours. By the way, have you come across Oxford mathematician and philosopher John Lennox? I have, just this year, and I have enjoyed his debates and discussions enormously. Thank you for that. Glenn and Jen. Hi, Rodney. I just replayed Politics Explained episode 12 regarding wasted votes. My wife and I live in Christchurch East and are wanting to vote for New Zealand Oil, Liz Gunn, and that we now understand we can do, but her candidates are only in Wigger and Selwyn. Are we able to vote for them as well? No, you're not. You can only vote for the candidates in your electorate, but it's a party vote that counts, so give New Zealand Oil your party vote, even though they are not in the area, or do we just miss that out and give a party vote? Yes, you can, or you can vote for one of the candidates. Could you give us some options, please? We both love your show and RCR, and it's great to be able to replay the replays. We need more signage. Out of our way, as a lot of people here do not know RCR, so we'd be happy to have a sign up on our fence. Thank you so much. 
There'll be one on there on its way, winging to you. Well, your party vote is what will count. So give your party vote to the party that you choose. And amongst the candidates, you don't have to vote, but you can choose if there's someone there that interests you or they represent a party that you'd like to support, you can vote for them. And from Alex, hi, I've just finished listening to your interview with Ashley Church about his faith and his relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, have been for about 40 years, and I just wanted to encourage you, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus, just reach out to him. It doesn't matter how you do it or what word you use. He'll come to you in love and meet you where you are on your journey, all the best. Well, Alex, that's been my experience. Didn't have to be very, very, I didn't have to be very um, sophisticated or intellectual or have read a lot or know a lot. Just had to open myself up. Thank you for that. Bless you all. Thank you for sending a text. Thank you for emailing me. I do so love it. Uh, remember, you can text me at 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's been Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh my goodness, did I love talking to Brian Tamaki. I hope I didn't interrupt him too much. What a fascinating man. And what a powerful man in terms of his oratory and his understanding. And of course, I realize now that you get a deep understanding of the human condition from the Bible, from studying the Bible, because it's telling you stories from the ages. And we haven't changed much. Basic problems that we face are as thousands and thousands of years, and this is a wisdom, an incredible wisdom. And Brian Tamaki has it. Oh, I loved it. I could have talked to him for much, much longer. But he's offered to come back, and I'd love to hear from you what you made of Brian Tamaki. Send me a text, 2057, inbox at radio, And also, Jack Marshall Lee. What it must be to be at university these days. It can't be carefree and the fun that I remember. Oh, you're worried about exams, but you could debate, discuss, argue, behave, talk with absolute freedom. Because we were at university exploring life and exploring ideas and debating, challenging. Oh, it just seems that strict, woke conformity. We I imagine even to laugh is not much fun. Huh? Send us a text, 2057. Email inbox at radio. Remember, that's my sort of form of payment. And I look forward to talking to you later in the week on Thursday. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for being part of our day here on Rally Check Radio. <laughs>